earth to air, rock into sun, earth skin flowered in mauve and yellow, lion peaks and lion walks skirted in growth, wind sculpture above the downland, in the fringe of low thick trees with the streams deep threading. Our headlands are always the crouching of beasts guarding thick breasts of ebullient land. Fierce northern tigers, wild cats of wind, or stormy elephants that are many-legged. Watchful mild horses snuffing the gales. Rocky tops with the touches of creatures. Earth into air, wind lashed. And the horses conceive of the wind. Shaggy-haired pony foals are born. Elephants stand in the tours, wild cats cry in them. The northern tiger and the lion lie supine but watching. They watch for the renewal of time, the coming of Arthur again. For strength that breaks out of hiding and lashes the skins of the ungodly. For the great light that comes without lighting, the man has not made. Rock seeks upward to the fire of sun, blown of the endless wind, refreshed at the roots by water. But the thunderbolt comes, that flashes from the east even to west, that strikes where it will. Indeed, it has destroyed, but where it has struck, there the grail is made. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the earthen duo, Jay and Nick. And here I thought I was made of meat. Huh. I'm definitely made of meat. All red meat. Yes. And on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. And we are back. Welcome. Yay. To whatever this is. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. What is this, Rory? What did I just read? Well, we read a book called The Druid Way by Philip Carr Gom. Gom? I have no idea. Yeah, I couldn't figure out if it was Gom or Gom. And I, I looked around on the internet. I couldn't find any agreements. I should have listened to some interviews and see uh, see how they pronounced it. But that I. That doesn't even mean that it's right. Yeah, I know, but I didn't have time. It just didn't happen. Yeah, as we learned by uh, doing the interview with like Brian Can- uh, Cano, uh, we can say his name wrong in front of him the entire time, and he won't correct us. So. I, 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 every, I get mortified every time I think about that. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering too. if it was just you know pinging him in the brain every time I said his name wrong. Yeah, no, I know, I, I felt the same. It's like, dude, why didn't you just say something? <laughs> Uh, so this was an interesting book. I certainly had an experience reading it. I am not sure 
I fully understand what I read. Um, but I think it's going to be fun to talk about. Here's the thing. I have been studying uh, under the Order of the Bards, Ovates, and Druids for over a year now, uh, doing the Bardic Grade. Which this guy, was, the author of this, was the director of them for many years. Yeah, he's one of the initial founders of the Order of the Bards, Ovates, and Druids. His mentor, Nguyen, is the founder of, yeah. the, Order of, Bard, of the Order of the Bards, Ovates, and Druids that I study under. And I don't really understand everything that we read through in this book. And I think a lot of it is just, um, it's a lot, and we're going to, we'll talk about it, but I think a lot of it is very, it was a very personal experience that he had and he tried to present it in a very uh, poetic way. And I think some of the poetry was, I don't want to say lost on us. I think it just, my personal thought is I think it just wasn't delivered very well. Yeah, I I could see that. I... (sighs) So with this book specifically, I, I felt very much like I was reading Jenny Tyson's work again. Yeah. And that I am reading what is ultimately a narrative that's coming from inside the myth. It's coming from the it's coming from the perspective of someone who is embroiled in this metaphysical worldview and is trying to in a in a concrete, you know, sentences on a page way describe what is ultimately an ineffable uh spiritual experience that's happening in an internal way yeah at least that's how i had to come around to it because the other option is um well that really there's two options here either a there are legit there are physical druidic gods walking around england which sure uh or he is profoundly schizophrenic yeah that is, uh, th- those are both technically prior uh, or possibilities, but we will actually have an opportunity to talk about that towards the end of the episode. All right. So, uh, but before we move into the summary and everything, Jay, what did you think? Um, I, I, I found, I found it enjoyable. I found it an extremely interesting read. Um, there were just several points where he began, uh, talking about certain historical things about the sort of global religious identity, and he would be making these very confident assertions about the evolution of modern religion, and I would just softly under my breath go, no. Yeah, there there was actually quite a bit of very strong statements that were made about translations of things or or like how you uh, or, or uh, uh, like a perception of something that was uh, t- at least the way I took it was delivered as this is actually the truth. Yeah. And uh, it's like, well, buddy, you are alone in this thought. And there have been scholars that have debated this for many, many hundreds of years. And nobody's thought this yet that I've thought, you know, or and we'll talk about some of that stuff, too. But no, I agree. That was something that actually actively bothered me, too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, this is not my field of expertise. I know just enough to know that you are wrong, but I do not have uh, the scholarly sources to explain why you are wrong or indicate what is correct. But I know that the statements you are making are of increasing levels of inaccuracy. Yeah. Now, so the this second edition came out in 2006. I, I don't have my uh, phone handy right now. Would, do we know when the first edition came out? 1993. Okay, because I'm wondering how much his opinion or, of, or understanding of various things he talks about in this book have even changed since then. 
Because um, 2006 oh, is I'm 18 sure, years ago. I'm sure quite a bit. Pe- yeah. You know, people uh, evolve and, and change uh, constantly. So I, I'm sure that it has evolved. He hasn't done a, a third edition of the book that that uh, I'm aware of. Um, but yeah, no, I I'm sure that it. I mean, I I know that some of it has at least evolved and changed because some of this doesn't line up with what Obad teaches. Well, and that's what I was thinking about. What is that? The gap between what's in this book and what's being presented by Obad. Now, granted, he is no longer leading Obad. 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 Bad. Obad. Order okay. of Bards, Ovates, and Druids. Ah, there's the B. Yeah. No. So he left the role in 2020 and passed it along to his successor. Yeah, uh, who is currently leading the group? So I, I was just curious if maybe that could explain the differential you were seeing. I'm, I'm sure that that is in. The, I'm sure that that's a part of it. Uh, the fact that he's no longer leading uh, the order, so I'm sure that that plays a part in why there's a discrepancies. Mind you, the vast majority of what they teach, at least in the Bardic grade, is uh, a lot of it is from Nguyen. Okay. Yeah. Then I got nothing. Yeah. All right, are we ready to begin? Yeah, let's get into it. Quote, In Druidry, the sacred journey of self-discovery is intimately linked with our need for reconnection to the natural world, the wisdom of the ancestors and the turning of the wheel of the year. The world of nature becomes a wise teacher who inspires the bard, the mystic, and the philosopher. Celtic art, poetry, and stories abound with references to the landscape and the natural world, whose wildness and beauty touches the soul and allows the experience of the sacred to flow through daily life. These three core sources of inspiration, the cycle of the year, the power of ancestors, and nature itself, form some of the core aspects of the Druid way. Today, we will follow Mr. Philip Cargom as he begins his own journey along the traditional byways of southern Britain in an attempt to come closer to the world around him. Now, a sacred symbol in Druidry, and in this book, is the spiral, and Cargom's journey begins on an earthen mound etched with this symbol from ancient times. The Triskel, for example, is the triple spiral that, while having many meanings, primarily means life, death, and rebirth. The spiral path of the ancients went through many gateways, leading to other worlds. One of these is death. When visiting with someone who is grieving the death of their daughter, he explains, quote, In the natural world, the cycle of life and death flows in an ever-changing and dynamic dance through the seasons, the decades, the millennia. Nothing is static. Nothing stays the same forever. It is when we, as human beings, try to hold on to that which needs to change that we feel distress and conflict. We never get over the death of a loved one. We instead learn to live with it and continue the journey before us. The spiral carries us in and out of this world many times as we continue along our journey. It is all a part of life. Now, Philip's journey began on Alban Arthen, or the Light of Arthur, or the Winter Solstice. Up on a moonlit mound with a dozen others, they performed a small ceremony together before he left. That same night, At 22 minutes before midnight, a close friend died. The next day, Cargom went back to the mound and sent up a prayer for his friend and then left again. And when he made it to the bottom, quote, suddenly the whole hill was ablaze with light. Nothing is what it appears to be, she told me. Spirit is everywhere. 
Splendor and love and power are everywhere. The land is sacred. Go on a journey. Start here, where you live. And so, he did. He'd recently moved to the town of Luz, and while it was a fine little town, for Philip it was too heavy with traffic, and it just didn't feel like home. After the ceremony, though, it started to feel more like he belonged here, and naturally, now he had to leave. Though the purpose of this leaving was good, that being trying to reconnect with the earth. And to him, the central issue of our age is that the world seems to be trying to sever our connection to the earth and the idea that the earth is sacred. This contention is becoming ever greater as we cause greater and greater levels of harm to the planet and to ourselves. It is the tension that we as a species must rectify. And to address this problem, Philip attempts to unite two seemingly different approaches, that of druidry and psychology. Psychology gives us the word for our problem, alienation. We are alienated from the world, from each other, and from ourselves. Psychotherapy seeks to help connect to the self, and group psychotherapy helps us connect to others. Transpersonal or spiritual psychotherapy puts us in touch with ourselves or spiritual realities. But, according to Philip, we need to go further and heal our alienation from the world itself. And this won't be an easy journey. It never is. The old adage in psychology of, either way it hurts, is meant to mean that if you face the problem, it's going to hurt. But it also hurts if you don't. He believes that this also applies to the world's soul. Quote, the path of consciousness requires an attempt to see what is. The first step needs no action. It simply requires seeing. We all know the experience of watching some terrible scene of suffering on the television. We look away. Then, when we think we can face it, we turn back. Looking through our fingers, perhaps? Until again, we must turn away. There is a progressive or fractional integration of awareness. This is the path of consciousness. The path of unconsciousness turns the television off or switches the channels. Healing begins by accepting who we are right now. And only once we do that can we change. In the chapter titled The Tump, we go to Newgrange. Quote, At Newgrange, the great belly temple of the goddess of Ireland, there are spiral patterns carved on the portal's stone and in the inner chambers. At the Tump and Luz, the spiral is to be found not carved in stone, but sculpted in the earth herself. A broad spiral path coils itself around the mount, starting in the north, the place of darkness and beginnings, and finishing by opening out to the broad, flat summit of the mound. Like any new experience in life, when we first start off, it's rough. And in this case, walking along the path starts by confronting him with the problems of the modern world. The beginning of the path is ugly, hidden in the backyard, facing a railway station. The only way to get on the path without crossing private property is to crawl over rubble and rubbish around the bowling club hut. Past that, the old world of nature is revealed. We journey into the natural world that has remained largely unchanged since the time of the ancient Druids. This, he writes, is the key distinction between revealed religions and natural earth religions. Revealed religions are based off of the revelations of a single or small group of people. These are your prophets, think like Jesus or Muhammad. They provide the teachings which inspire the head world religions. The earth religions teach that the earth itself is the lone teacher. 
There are no sacred books to die or kill for. There's no dogma. Only nature to guide and inspire us on an individual level. Now, does this mean that we should cast aside all of our worldly possessions and embrace the old ways 100%? No, of course not. Quote, what we need to discover is a way in which we can reconcile the necessity to learn from the earth with the need to build upon, rather than reject, the accumulated knowledge of the centuries. A clue of how to do this, according to Philip, is found in the symbol of the Holy Grail. To find the Holy Grail, we must unite primordial vision, or our innate wonder of the natural world, with the study of ancient wisdom traditions. The Grail is the cup, which the term used for the cup is also very close to the term for book that, when drunk from, restores sight of the primordial world. It allows us to see the world more clearly. And the truth is, the modern world gives us the best possible conditions to remain alert and to seek out these truths. We have the potential to learn from all that have come before and to study other branches of learning which inform this search for the primordial vision. What we lack is the relationship with nature. The path is then twofold. One, organize the relevant written materials of the tradition, and two, create a true relationship with nature. Quote, In being called by the Tump to begin a journey, I was being called to rediscover the primordial vision I had enjoyed as a child. But this time I was to seek the goddess not for a mother in whom I could forget myself, but as a teacher who could show me the way in which I could unite the knowledge I had accumulated as a student of Druidry with an experience of nature that would make the knowledge valuable and meaningful and relevant to the world in which I found myself. And this is going to lead us into our first discussion question. I'm ready. So, let's talk a little bit about this idea of learning from the earth and of the old traditions in the modern day. So, to you, what is something that would be like the biggest roadblock in trying to do this kind of study in the modern day now, if there is any? And do you think there is actual merit here? Or is this just some tree hugger wanting to imply knowledge where there is none? Okay, so before I answer this, the, I have a question. In terms of uh, the question of is this worth studying, what are the roadblocks to studying this, this kind of, or adopting this kind of worldview, are you talking about on a societal level or an individual level? I was thinking more on a societal level. Okay, well, in that case, I mean, the roadblocks are... You can are, answer it either way, but I think I was thinking more on a societal level. Well, I think that... Uh, it's kind of macro, micro. They're, they're yeah. two halves of the same coin here. Because I think the, the truth is we live in boxes for a reason. Uh, and if you look, you know, again, he brings this up in the book. Look around the modern world. We are surrounded by things that our ancestors would uh, unabashedly call miracles. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, we are, I guess, the equivalent of, uh, you know, what I guess the peasant class would be. We're the working class. Mm -hmm. And we're living in a house. We have ample forms of entertainment. We have food. We have drink. We don't have to worry about suddenly dying of uh, starvation or uh, weird plagues that will sweep. Oh, granted, I guess with COVID that could happen. Yeah. My point being, though, is that all of these innovations have created a situation where we are far more comfortable, educated, well-fed, and protected than almost any other generation of human history. Correct. And with that in mind, I mean, on an individual level, <laughs> if, if if the argument, which I'm not saying that's what he's saying to do, obviously he uh he said that's not the case, but 
if you could, can you imagine going up to anyone on the street and be like, hey, I need to reunite you with the primordial vision of nature. And all you got to do is get rid of your house, your car, all of that, and go live in the woods and live to the ripe old age of 32. It, it's it's going to need a no sell. I think yeah. uh, he's right in the idea that we need to find a way forward where we maintain what we have while building upon it. And I honestly think there is some evidence that this is already happening. Uh, I know this is something Jay has brought up before, but for example, California has had huge wildfire issues. And now, after year after year of these wildfires getting worse, they're learning to go talk to the local tribes who used to do controlled burns to prevent wildfires from getting out of control. Mm -hmm. And now they're starting to adopt some of those native traditions. And I mean, we the reasons why we have largely buried and ignored those kind of ancient nature wisdom are many. I, I think a big part of it is uh, like we talked about on the show. Hey, those ancient people, those you know people living in teepees, they couldn't, they obviously couldn't know anything about what's going on. So they have to be wrong. When the truth is, most of those civilizations, you know, us. Like I take my dog to the park to go for a walk. It's a nice jaunt through a very carefully manicured woods. I'm not living in nature. I have occasional uh, visits with a very tame version of nature. And every once in a great while, I get to go to a national park, which even that is a tame version of nature. There's roads, mm-hmm. there's pathways, as long as you're not, you know, deep country backpacking. There's park rangers there to save the day. Yeah, exactly. If I, you know, there's a cha- good chance that if I mess up, someone will help me. Well, ancient people, I mean, not even ancient people, but indigenous people didn't really have that. They lived in nature 24-7. They, they... Of just by the fact that they are there, they're going to notice things. They're going to pick up on patterns, and they're going to learn more about the natural rhythms of the earth than I'm, I'm going to guess most of us will be able to do with any kind of study. Uh, and it's entirely because it, it kind of goes into that uh, that level of holistic knowledge we talk about with Gary Lockman. Yeah, where it's it doesn't matter that they don't understand the uh, chemical balances in the soil and how that affects crop growth. They just know, hey, I need to rotate these two crops. And maybe in their mythology, they live in a sort of symbiosis with each other. Or their spirits are married when really that is, alleg- I mean, internally true. It's the answer to why and not how. How is the chemical process that our scientists are figuring out? But the fact of the matter is, regardless of how you came to that conclusion, it's the same conclusion. And you come to the same methods and you come to the same tricks in order to uh, not just manipulate nature, but live live in harmony with nature. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is ultimately the uh, the way forward is to keep hoping things like that keep happening, where we start figuring out that there is great use and benefit to us here in the modern day of this ancient knowledge. But until... That knowledge is taken, uh, I guess, out of the mythology that originated it and put into terms that most people are not going to get, uh, I don't know, weirded, not, weirded out is not the right term, but they're not going to get a religious vibe from it. Because I think that's the biggest thing. Because if I were to go, again, to the government of California, I'd be like, hey, we need to do these controlled burns because it, it will please the spirit of the woods. They're, they're never going to give a shit. And that, that's just the truth. If, if it's you're outside the myth, nothing that somebody who is a believer can say will convince you. Right. Unless you are already predispositioned towards that. Right. So, I mean, I think that's ultimately it is, is we need to figure out what is it, it, the utilitarian useful parts of that knowledge and begin working it into the modern secular view, uh, worldview. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. Oh, okay. absolutely. I think for me, 
uh, the biggest obstacle that we have to returning to kind of nature-based knowledge and learning is um, it's something that's discussed a lot in this book, and Nick brought it up just now, is the fact that uh, for the vast majority of us living in Western society, nature has been completely taken away from us. You know, I spend a lot of time online. Some people would uh, label me as chronically online, though not terminally online. Just chronically, not terminally. You do sometimes move and eat. Yes, and I do occasionally leave the house quite joyfully. Um, But uh, I, you know, that's allowed me to make friends with people all across the world. And there are some people in urban centers who have told me without a hint of irony, sarcasm or hyperbole, they're like, oh, no, no, I've never seen a tree taller than like five feet. And I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? And they're like, the only trees I've ever seen is like the fucking little ones planted along the sidewalk. I've never I've, I've never left Manhattan. What do you want from me? And it's like, that makes me sick. I'm going to be completely honest. Well, I mean, like it, we live in one of the most heavily forested states. Of course, that is going to seem very alien to us. We yeah. have the I think I read something once. We have the largest um, if you look at like square mileage. We have the largest government-protected forest system in the entire world. I mean, that's kind of cool. There's yeah. a reason to like Michigan. Yeah, we There's have one. Yeah, <laughs> we got one. Uh, we were also the first English-speaking government in the world to ban the death penalty. We did that shit in the 1800s, y'all. We got two. Actually, we probably got a lot more than that before we banned the death penalty. But we got two now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, though, Jay. I mean, I do actually. I don't. I don't remember what context I watched this under, but I remember watching. A, a video where they were basically interviewing kids in the inner city. And one question they often asked them was, where do carrots come from? Where do corn come from? Where, or rather, it was, where do carrots grow? Where does corn grow? And the answer they were getting, and these were, you know, first to third graders from these kids in the inner city was, they grow in cans. That's yeah. just where they come from. They grow inside of cans because, of course, that's what they think. Right. I, I've encountered some, and these are terminally online lefties, who have said with their full chest, there's no need for individual cars, man. And it's like, well, what about people living in rural areas? They're like, rural areas shouldn't exist, man. We should all be living in urban centers because rural areas encourage isolation and conservative thinking. And I'm like, I think you should kill yourself. Well, that's a little extreme. I, I think they should go outside. Let me <laughs> revise. I think you should uh, stop talking. Yeah, there we go. For seven years. Also, okay, too much. rural or city or not, with a decent public transportation system, there would be no need for personal, for individual cars. I feel like I personally, this is a hill I will die on. I feel like there is always going to be at least a small percentage of people for whatever reason where individual transport is going to make more sense for them. We should have massive amounts of tran- of public transportation system, but the systems that should be the default. But there is nothing in the world that is one size fits all. And exactly. And nobody with a true head on their shoulders and an actual understanding of how soci- uh, how a society works would say that nobody's going to ever have a need for an individual uh, for individual transportation because there's always going to be a one off. There's always going to be that scenario. Yeah. But the point uh, like the point that uh, that person probably was trying to make is that if we had a decent public transportation system, the need for it would be drastically lowered. Like, for example, where we live. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to have a decent public transportation system where I shouldn't need a car. Yeah. To get from my city to the 
big city, bigger city that I live in, there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to take a bus, but I can't. Yeah. Um, the, the, the point that I was, uh, trying to get to is that there are people living in urban centers and in suburban townships that have become so disconnected from what the earth actually does that it seems like they have forgotten that farming exists. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, yeah. It's well, well, pe- and also another issue with that kind of thinking is it tends to be, well, what about, you know, when you bring up farming, uh, one response I've heard in that regard as well, you know, that will be done by, you know, the big, the big corporations. They can automate the whole thing. It's like, do you really want that? Do you want? You shouldn't. <laughs> we, we, and, and that's the issue is I don't like anything that's giving power to the corporations. Because it shouldn't, like, to the extreme that it's gotten to, it should never have happened. Absolutely. We also straight up, like, I'm really, really tired of people in our parents' generation complaining about kids not going outside anymore when it's like, you're the ones that didn't let us go outside because you thought we were going to be abducted by cartels. Yep. Like, we have become, humans have not only just paved over nature, the parts of it that remain, we have become terrified of yeah like so many girls when i was at girl scout camp had to get sent home after the first night because they were up all night crying because they didn't know how to deal with the fact that there were bugs yeah and it's just like it's just like you're 11 years old and you've never had to kill a grasshopper by yourself also why are you killing a grasshopper it's a goddamn grasshopper but no, it had six legs and was a color they weren't expecting it to be. So it was a national catastrophe. And they had to go, they had to go back home to their apartment. And it just it it, it it's 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 it, I'm just reminded of lions in zoos in the 40s that were just kept in concrete boxes. And it's just like we're doing that to ourselves mm-hmm. constantly. And I think that's the the main obstacle to nature, to returning to any sort of nature-based learning or understanding of the world is just that the vast majority of people in the West have become so utterly disconnected from it that they don't realize they're craving it. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. And I think a big part of it is, uh, well, uh, to nobody who has listened to this show's surprise, I think the biggest roadblock to getting any kind of like back to earth kind of centric idea, you know, philosophy. Yeah. Is uh capitalism. I mean, yeah, because, because uh, you can't, because the, the fundamental idea of capitalism is growth. Okay. And growth is going to by its very nature is going to consume nature and therefore eventually it will die. Uh, and then our, like Jay was saying, our disconnect from nature because of a lot of the Western capitalistic society that we live inside is going to only get exacerbated as we continue to go on unless there is giant societal shift in uh, like a direction. And they are, there are, there's a lot of people out there that are actively trying because of climate change, because of climate change and the need to actually turn this shit around, or there, you know, we're going to hit the point of no return, and then the planet's going to die. Period. End of conversation. It's just a matter of time at that point. And I think that that is, uh, and right now that's the direction that we're headed. And unfortunately, until we can get enough scientific evidence to back up what we're saying, and there is a shitload, but it's it's clearly not enough. I don't. I mean, you know, personally, I don't think 
this is a bit pessimistic. I don't think it will ever be enough for a large section of people. Not while capitalism still drives the drives the uh, the markets. Well, I think it, it, there's also a uh, a tendency for for people to stick their head in the sands regarding existential threats they can't do anything about. This is too big. It's too complicated. There's too many things about my life that would have to change. So I'm going to ignore it and hope it goes away. And I think that there's a hell of a lot of people who live their life like that. Yeah, no, there is. There's a so I have this book. It's really cool. I don't remember the title. If I uh, I'll find it and I'll link it in the description just in case anybody's interested in it. But it's all about re- living your life via the circle of the year inside Druidry, but doing it in a very green way. It's very interesting. It's very cool. It's very, it, it's, it's, it would be big life shifts for a lot of people. And it's something that I would like to work towards myself eventually. Um, but it's, it's very interesting nonetheless. But I think that that kind of, um, the lifestyle is is very achievable. It's just a it's a mind over matter kind of deal, you know. But yeah, anything else? Yeah, no, I I think that's about it. I mean, I think uh, it, it, this is one of those questions that is not truly answerable because oh, yeah. of the intense complexity of the situation. Oh, a hundred percent. But I will say, I have seen some cool signs of like future uh future ecology in the sense like using drones to plant trees and stuff like that like that shit's cool let's do more of that let's sci-fi fix the planet there's a lot of people that are trying yeah i know know. they just need funding so support them before they figured out what was killing the bees and afterwards because uh the bees are still are still low in numbers uh some scientists were developing these little robot uh bees and wasps to act as artificial pollinators yeah I heard about that. That I don't like. Why? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should be replacing pieces of nature. No, 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 no. If we can't bring them fully back, at least it's still continuing the cycle. I would rather little robot doctors that fix the bees. Nick. What? Nick. Hey, we're in sci-fi land. I can imagine whatever I want. Oh my God, I And I am going to stick by robo-bee doctors. Robo D- Robo B doctors in Nick's sci-fi land. I can feel myself developing an aneurysm. Don't worry. I'll send the little robot doctors. So you're just thinking nanobots. I guess. The rest of the episode is just me beating Nick to death with a candle. Good luck. I am filled with so many doctors. Ding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I- I want to walk away, but I can't because we're recording. <laughs> and as Section captive two. audience, <laughs> I'm taking back my T-shirt. <laughs> For context, that's a birthday gift. Yeah, because if I if I had squeezed into one of Jay's T-shirts, uh, you wouldn't hear me talking. You'd hear me gasping as it w- as the tight fabric was strangling me to death. I told you not to put on my tank top. <laughs> I told you you couldn't fit in it, but you had to be like, don't tell me what to do, you short ass. It'd be like a food bib that strangles you while you eat. Quote, the journey began with a gateway, a natural gateway formed by a beech and a yew tree. The ancient druids understood gateways and all that they mean. Some scholars now say that the proto-druids built Stonehenge, and Stonehenge acts as a gateway for the solstice sunrises. Each stone circle has its gateway, its entrance place between two stones. Irish folklore is full of stories of people ending up in fairyland by passing through the wrong gateway and ending up leaving this world and falling face first into the other world. The poet Novellus says that 
Each of us is a living gateway between our inner and outer worlds. Druidry teaches us to walk through that gateway. But before passing through, we must ask permission from the spirits and guardians of that gate. Now, at the start of this journey, our author was flanked by two trees, one being the yew and the other being a beech tree. Both have deep meanings in Druidry. And before leaving on this journey, he touched both trees. And when he touched the yew, a tree with poisonous leaves that represents death and rebirth in Druidry, and asked that he may die to illusion and wake up to a new cycle of joy, creativity, and life. When he touched the beech, the tree that represents tradition, learning, wisdom, and ancient knowledge, and ate one of the nuts as any one of the ancient druids may have done. Quote, Understanding that the quest involves uniting experience with the knowledge tradition. The discovery of a beach and you at the very beginning of my journey is a wonderful coincidence. Experience comes when we allow ourselves to follow the voice of the you, to die and be reborn. Knowledge comes when we allow ourselves to be fed by the beach, the accumulated wisdom of the past. Working with Druidry centers to such a degree on relating in specific ways to the past, to our history. And in doing this, we establish our roots and draw on our heritage, and we also secure our future. This led him to realize that the rubbish and ruin that we have made of the earth makes it hard to love. We can't love the earth because we can't face what we've done to her. So, with that, he set off from the tump with only his backpack and walking boots, passing by the ruins of the Benedictine Priory and taking in the sights while deep in thought. After he passed through a tunnel beneath the road, he encountered a young blonde woman. She introduced herself as Nywilin and said her name means the white track. She said that she was the goddess of the road and the spirit of the journey. She led him to touch the ground where he saw a faint line of silver light showing him the path. She said it was the path across Blessed Earth, across Merlin's enclosure. And as quick as she had interjected herself into his life, she vanished at least in the full apparition form, because he could still feel her presence from that moment on through the remainder of his journey. And when he moved on, his worries fell away from him, at least for that moment. As he continued his walk, he heard a blackbird singing and saw it on the goddess's shoulder and was invited to ask it a question. So, he asked, What has become of all the animals and plants who no longer grace our land? To which the blackbird began singing a new song and our author knew the answer to his question. Quote, then I understood. Just as modern man has the arrogance to believe his planet is the only one out of millions of planets to hold intelligent life, so we have the arrogance to believe that we perceive the only reality that can possibly exist. At some level, some inner, deeper, essential level, nothing can be destroyed. We can crush and break the forms, but we can never destroy the essence of things. If the world were to be blown up by madmen in Washington, London, or Beijing tomorrow, I knew that somehow, somewhere, none of the splendor of nature would be lost. It would continue to exist in the inner world until the time came for it to manifest outwardly again. However, this bird was sad, because while the essence would live on, this world, our world, is unique. The pieces that hold our world together are unique and can be destroyed, and, in fact, are being destroyed. So the essences may come back, but never like they are here. The world, in other words, was mortal. 
how the world reacts to this is still kind of up in the air. We are the first generation of people that need to grapple with the possibility of our planet dying, at least according to our author. And only time will tell if we will mature from this or if it's going to lead to some nihilistic despair. And as he continued his journey, the modern world receded into nature, save for the occasional cottage that he passed as he roamed the countryside. He eventually came upon a vantage point to see the town of Luz, a small town save for this massive office building. And from here, he could see the tump where his journey began. In medieval times, Christians tried to explain the tump as being old rubble excavated from the salt flats, or an old Calvary hill constructed by priory monks. However, these were lies told to cover the truth, and they are lies that many still believe. These hills formed a network of sacred sites. They are very similar, differing only in size and the path that leads to their summit. These trackways are crucial to understanding Druidry. Built up around 6500 BCE, these paths became known as people traveled from place to place seeking seasonal sites, hunting grounds, or places to ford rivers. So they were like the highways of old, and, in fact, some of them have even become major roads or highways. When he looked back to Luz to begin again on his journey, he saw a vision of the past. He saw canoes moving on the river, a small settlement on the nearby lakeside. He saw houses made from timber and hides. And then the vision faded. He realized that Luz was a guardian city. It is a gateway formed by Swanborough Hill and Mount Cavern. He also noted that we have long defended it and other such sacred sites as somehow important, even in later wars when the tactical advantage of such locations was relatively small. But the journey must continue. As he neared Itford Hill and a river crossing that he would need to make, he heard singing and a voice say three times, the songs of our ancestors are also the songs of our children. Quote, I stop to think about this, and everything suddenly swirls and whirls around and around me, and I hear the great roar of Bronze Age horns booming in the chambered passage of New Grange. And I hear again the chick, chick, chick sound of the bronze rattles, shaped in the form of bull's testicles that the proto-druids shook as the trumpets blew. Goddamn invisible hippies lacing the grass with LSD. <laughs> And I hear the high song of the druidess tumbling down into the sound bowl of depth and darkness created by the low humming of the druids. From this, he took away that fixing the harm to this landscape means understanding the phrase that he had heard. So if we believe in reincarnation, then we must believe that our ancestors return as our children. So, he followed the voice and feeling that was provided by his disembodied teacher, and went down the slope of a hill. Here, he had a vision, or maybe an out-of-body experience, into the past. He found himself standing with Noon, his mentor, both of them wearing sandals and clothing of leather and furs. Down below, he could see five round houses, an ancient farm around which children and dogs played. Noon said to touch nothing, for the Denzians of the past could not see them, but they may sense them. They entered the largest home inside which were beds of grass and fur. An old woman was inside making flatbread, and nineteen bundles of herbs hung from the ceiling, lit by candles, for imbolic. A man entered the hut, and spoke with the old lady. He showed something to the woman, and then, when she approved of it, he 
he began digging in the doorway to bury it. It looked kind of like a piece of chalk. The man prayed over it and then left. Newman explained that the object he buried was a phallus statue meant to ensure fertility to the farm. He buried it in the doorway because the doorway is itself a gateway. And gateways are important in Druidry for they are places of power. Newman explained that we have all been here before, died, and then come back. That life is a cycle that we are a part of. Quote, We have all died and been buried in places like these. We have crossed the threshold into the other world, into the Summerlands, into High Brezel, and we have come back, crossing the threshold again with the help of our parents, spiraling through the seed of the father and the egg of the mother to be born again in the cauldron of the womb. We come and we go, from one world to the next as the sun sets and rises again. And with that, he was gone, and Philip awoke on the side of the hill. As he made his way through the land, he noted a black cloud and feared being caught in a downpour, which unfortunately came to fruition and he was drenched. But thankfully, this didn't last horribly long, for as the cloud went north, it took the rain with it and left behind a rainbow that, directly beneath its arch, was the town of Luz. And he felt elated at the sight of this. Quote, If someone asks what druid practice consists of, one way of answering it is as follows. It involves working with the chalice and the blade. The chalice is the magic circle, the circle of stones, or the grove of trees. The blade, sword, or wand is the old straight track, the path, or the journey. Our lives consist of rest and motion alternatively, of being and doing as alternate states. In the sacred grove we find rest, we are calm, we are seated. We work our magic, we open ourselves to the breath of Awen, of inspiration, we find support in letting go of our obsession to do and to have. And with the wand, the lance, the spear, the athame, the dagger, the sword, we move into the realm of doing. We act in the world. We go forth. We journey. And in the Druid context, we do this by literally journeying into the physical world. We throw a pack on our shoulders, a map in our pocket, and we set forth on our own tradition of vision questing, walking the old tracks. So what do we do when we encounter these storms that stand in our way and torment, drown, and attempt to derail us from our path? Do we flee? Do we fight? Well, if we fight it, we risk suppressing the power that the storm represents, or dragon as he calls them. On a personal level, it leads us to believe that we have conquered our sexuality, our lust for greed and power, and if we flee, it will continue to haunt us. The answer, according to Philip, is to befriend it to look for the lesson and power in its manifestation. This is the purpose of vision questing. One thing to note, he says, is that not every dragon can be befriended. Not every repression can be lifted or not every pain can be healed. These storms are only to be faced at the right time, in the right way, when one is truly ready. And some may never be faced at all. When I got to the section of the book, I couldn't get the image out of my head of Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump on top of the uh, on top of the mask, screaming at God to kill him. <laughs> that was the image that was in my head the whole time. That's hilarious. I have never seen that movie. Really? Yeah. Oh well, we need to change that. Every it's day a, it is a classic. Every day, you give me another reason to think that we are different species. 
You uh, just, you, I don't understand how you can grow up not watching that. But then it came out so long before you were born. Of course you haven't oh, seen it. Oh, no. My parents uh, banned Forrest Gump from the house. Really? Yes. They considered it anti-intellectual propaganda. They're like, it's not possible to be happy when you're that stupid. This is a lie. That is there's a lot to that is the most dramatically sentence. bad take of Forrest Gump I've ever heard, and we don't have time to unpack it right here. C- correct. That's something we're gonna scream we're just, about off air. We're yep. gonna move right along. The druid term for life force is nuefre, which is an old Welsh term for energy or vigor, which is actually something that I mentioned on the show before. So neat. In both Eastern traditions and in Druidry, the snake then represents the life force that winds through the self and the land. The force is all around us, not just within us, and we are part of it. Quote, How beautiful is it that the Celtic knotwork, both language and symbolic animals, interweave to show us the relationship between ourselves and the land, between the dragon in our own body and the dragons of the earth, inner and outer, self and other, dance together as do the words Nuefre and Wyvern. The druid Kundalini and the fire-breathing dragon, the Kundalini of the earth goddess. The purpose of dragons, both inner and outer, is to convey the creative fire. This is the breath that brings life in abundance. These dragons have been allowed to sleep in the earth. We need to awaken them and harness the power of creation within them to help us reconnect to the earth and right the wrongs that we have done her. And with that, we're going to move into our second discussion question. Yay! So let's talk about these dragons. Dragons. So it is ultimately a very simple question. Do you vibe with what he's saying here? Do you believe that these dragons or storms need to be awakened and that some need to be confronted both for ourselves and for society? So just to make sure I'm thinking about this correctly, um... Storms and dragons in this understanding are effectively allegory for the difficulties of life. Correct. Okay. At least that was my understanding of it. Yeah, that's as far as I got. I mean, that, that's the thing. Half of this book, I feel like you could interpret uh, in a dozen different ways. Yeah. Every single scene could be, have completely different meanings, which is cool from a reading perspective. But, I mean, from discussing it, it's a little difficult. Yeah. I would agree, because uh, writing some of these questions was difficult. So I I actually really vibed with this part of the book, because I do, by and large, agree with him. Um, I never want to... Um, I have complicated feelings about this, because I never want to endorse suffering as a good thing, just because, in my experience... Uh, that rhetoric exists so that abusive parents can sleep at night. Yeah. Um, so I never, but I will accept that suffering is inevitable and that attempting to avoid all suffering in a panicked frenzy is often going to cause more harm than good. It's just, it's, it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a fact of life. Even if you raise a kid in a paradise like bubble that you built on the dark side of the moon, that kid's still going to suffer because that's a fucked up thing to do to a person. Yeah. That's what the Truman Show is about. <laughs> and even they drowned his dad for, like, laughs, basically. Um, so, yeah. I can't I, believe you've seen the Truman Show, but you haven't seen Forrest Gump. Yeah, because the Truman Show's good. Forrest Gump's good. You can't even make that statement yet. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw you into a river. Oh, finally? 
I mean, you're not going to die. You're just going to get wet. Just going to just bobbing along like a corpse in graveyard keeper. Just whisked off the map and into a better life. I think you were whisked on a waterfall. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I, these, these things, these things, suffering, storms, dragon, dragons, whatever you want to call them, they're an inevitable fact of our life. And they are one of the main things that ends up shaping our personality and our identity and the way that we interact with the world. So, uh, kind of like, kind of like the, the whole Eve had to eat the apple in order for us to be humans. Like you don't, you don't get a human being if you take out all the suffering. You can't make a cake without eggs. Um, and yes, I, I also thought that it was an incredibly insightful statement to be like, we can't heal every hurt. We can't resolve every trauma. Like that's that's kind of a thing that I've been learning to accept in myself because I've spent so much of my life attempting to um, frantically stamp out every imperfect or annoying trait that I have in my personality. And about a year or two ago, I realized like, oh, this is just this is just this is this is a doomed endeavor. Like I am not I'm I'm never going to be a perfect writer. I'm never going to be a perfect partner. I'm never going to be a perfect anything cuz I'm a person and um it's weird it's it, it's it's weirdly helping kind of build into some of the 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 radical acceptance that I've been trying to do with my my current therapist of it's like yep this is just this is this some this being like things I don't particularly like about myself. A good percentage of those things, it's just like, yeah, this is this is always going to be happening. We don't entirely know why, but uh, the majority of my suffering about those unpleasant aspects of my own personality was starting to come from my desperate desire to throttle them out of existence, not from their actual existence. And ever since I've learned to just accept them as part of my uh, psyche's landscape, th th things are things are getting marginally easier. It's like that. Uh... That song from The Greatest Showman. This is me. Yeah, this is me. And so, yeah, some some of these dragons need to be uh, faced down and beaten. Uh, some dragons need to be befriended, and you learn how to just sort of live with them. And some dragons you have to run away from because you're like, oh, can't confront that trauma. That's six generations back, and everyone who could give me catharsis is dead. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah, well, and also, I mean... On the topic of, I guess, difficulties or dragons that we can't face, there's also I don't know, like, because I was just th I was thinking about this obviously, and um, so one of the things that I I don't like about myself, and I've worked hard to try to get rid of it, and I went through a very similar process you did, Jay, of kind of just accepting it was part of my life now, is uh some of the uncontrollable reactions I have when in a car that is under in a dangerous situation or in a minivan at all. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I've been trying to either through brute force of willpower or uh, I tried therapy to, to kind of make that go away. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have that reaction anymore. I wanted to be done with it. And, uh, well, after several therapists told me that's, that's just not how this works. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, 
I kind of eventually had to come to the conclusion of like, this is something that is going to keep hurting me. There's no getting away from that. It's not a dragon I can defeat. Uh, I might, you know, the longer I've gone from the accident, the easier it's become, but I don't expect it to ever go away. And it's not one I feel like I can befriend. There's not, I've, I've looked at it from a lot of angles. I might just have missed something. I don't think there's anything I can learn more from that scenario. I learned a lot about myself already from that situation. Um, and it's also not one I can slay, but it's one that I can survive, yeah. if that makes sense. I know yeah. it's there, and I know it will continue to hurt me, but I know that those wounds are ultimately something I can get through. It's a little baby dragon that you've got to carry around in your arms. It'd just be like, its mom died. What else am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I enjoy, I do vibe with the, the, the allegory of looking at these as dragons. Um, you know, because it helps to kind of personify an issue in a way. Uh, it helps you kind of grapple with what you're going to do about it, how you're going to face it. Because a lot of the issues in our life, they're much more nebulous than mm. a dragon. Yeah. You know, there's there, there's all these uh, considerations for other people's feelings, what other people want from you, what you want from yourself. And all of that can paralyze you. Yeah. It can make these issues pile up because you're never facing any of them because you don't know how to face any of them. And I think uh, the point is not really knowing how to face it perfectly, but learning that it's okay to face it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yes, you will. Yes, you might lose the fight. Yes, you might. Uh, you might face this and come away a little worse for it. But all of that is ultimately on the road to hopefully being better. Mm-hmm. Um, and because if, if go back to something Jay was saying, if if Jay, for example, if you had succeeded in pounding out all of the parts of your personality you didn't like, you know what that would make you. Boring as hell. Yep. I mean, because that's the truth, is that we are, to a degree, built of our flaws. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, there are certain flaws, which as a society and as individuals, we have said, well, that is a flaw too far. Like, hey, I like pureeing babies and drinking them like a meat smoothie. Ah. Well, you know, that's a flaw that we need to put you in a cage for. Are these babies ethically sourced? There is no such thing, and I will never accept any such thing as an ethically sourced baby. I believe you. I am. I'm. A, I'm on Nick's side here, specifically for food purposes. Not to say all babies are immoral, though they are <laughs> suspicious. Uh, <laughs> Don't gonna... be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Uh, Ethically source your babies. Don't be suspicious. I, I think oh on God. a societal level, I think that this is, I think I like this metaphor even more on a societal level because I feel like on an individual level, people do deal with their dragons in their various ways because they have to. There's no mm-hmm. option. I feel like when it comes to society's greater dragons, those elder dragons that loom over us all, none of us individually can deal with them. And so that's the one that we're all ignoring. Yep. And and that that's the bigger issue, and I think that's part of what he's getting at here is that these uh, we we can't you can't ignore it on the micro scale or the macro scale. Yep, because it's like they say about history. It's you know it's it's essentially it's destined to repeat itself unless we unless we address it right. Uh, and that I think that's a huge part of this uh, because acknowledging that something is a dragon, that it's an issue is the first step to actually making reparations, making amends, getting better, okay? And I'm going to use America as an example here because one of the things that we are actively struggling with as a society is getting everybody on, on board to accept that America was founded on deep, deep levels of racism and genocide. Uh, yeah, and deep religious intolerance. 
Yeah, and it is factually accurate. Like we know this. It's documented. There's da- it's data driven. Like we know that this is true. But there are large sections of the population that are so caught up in American patriotism that they won't accept that we have flaws like that. But it's like you said, Nick, that doesn't make us boring. It doesn't make us bad. If anything, it made us who we are today. And America today isn't a bad thing. We have problems. There's a lot of things that we can address and get better, but we are the most powerful country in the world for a reason. And, you know, and we could be better is, you know, and we can address these issues. Well, and, and honestly, if you look at I, here's the thing is like there's a lot that America does get flack for and many much of it is deserved. There are things that we do that I'm not sure we do deserve the flack over. For example, uh, America is one of the large is one of the largest givers in terms of humanitarian aid. Correct. Now, the argument is that, well, we are cre- we created the situation where that aid was necessary. And, and by- that's not always true, but it is true sometimes. Yes, but it's not always true. And also the fact is, yes. OK, great. We created that situation, be either intentionally or not. So your answer is we do nothing and they starve. Like, and that, that's the thing is and there are countries all over the world and you know, we rarely ever defend America. So this will be a brief moment in time in which we defend our country. Yeah. But whenever something goes wrong in the world, every time, every other, uh, every other world leader stops and looks at us and they go, are you going to do something about this? And then we have to make a decision on whether or not we're going to do something about it. Nine times out of ten, we do. Well, and that's the funny thing is I do think that there is something about the American identity, which I, I do like this part of us, is that I a lot of people in this country, uh, when something is going on that is so obviously wrong, we have this deep desire to do something. Yeah. And, and uh and we're not willing to just seethe on it usually. Yeah, no, that's why we've given so much fucking money to Ukraine. I was about to say, I think Ukraine is a great example of that because it, it's it was so funny because you know, I obviously over the past ten years I've gotten so used to the fact the idea that if anyone has an idea, there's going to be an equal amount of people who don't like it and mm-hmm. they're going to fight bitterly. And yes, there are people uh, specifically on the right who are very anti-Ukraine and pro-Russia, but when this first when the the war first started. Man, that voice seemed a lot smaller all of a sudden. There yep. were people on both sides of the aisle going, yeah, we got we to gotta help them. And that's, that's, that was a great moment for me. That made me think we're not totally lost. Even Mitch McTurkeyneck decided that he wanted to fucking support Ukraine at one point. Yeah, and if our poultry birds can make that decision, so can we all. Yeah. <laughs> the, the swell of pride that crested in my chest when... Um, Kentucky in this last election cycle, um, a ballot was put forth to uh, make abortion completely and utterly illegal in Kentucky at a constitutional level. And it was put to a public vote. And the public, the voting public of Kentucky overwhelmingly shot it down because even though it is a very pro-life state, their stance is, yeah, but that shouldn't be the government's fucking business. And it was like, yes! <laughs> I, I agree with Kentucky on that front. It's, no, it is I not the too. government's business. Yep. I do too. I was so fucking happy. I was like, yes! Good. Good horse people. <laughs> uh, anyway, so return to the original question. I did have one last thing to say that he didn't get to in this, but I, I just I think it's a, a, another good piece of wisdom to add to this is that there are many dragons you can face in a solo encounter. 
There are many dragons, however, that are raid encounters, and you need mm. a party behind yeah. you. You need support. You need people who are going to be in your corner. And uh, it should never be a problem to ask for that or or to give it, frankly, because we're all in that situation. Yes. We're all going to face uh, trials and issues that we cannot face under our own power. And I think that's another, and this kind of goes into that whole idea we've talked about before of American individualism. I think... <laughs> we we need to get a lot more okay with a community centered mindset in which none of us are in this alone and no one no one fails alone but also no one succeeds alone we're all part of a large me- larger mechanism and that's not a bad thing that's not dehumanizing that is in my opinion more humanizing we're we are a social animal and ignoring that just leads to misery and cable news <laughs> and and junk food yeah. Although we're not losing the junk food. I like that. I am a fan of the uh potato chip. We uh we deserve junk food, okay? We are we are persistence predators. And uh we deserve we we okay, listeners out there, I need you to I need you to listen very, very closely. If you haven't eaten today because you feel like you don't deserve to, or because you feel like you don't need to, whatever reason, yeah, you need to go fucking eat. And drink water. Yeah, drink drink your water. Drink drink some water. If you put, got a water bottle next to you, take a sip right now. Yeah, but put put calories into your body, okay? Okay? Kate Moss should be tried as a war criminal for saying nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. I just think it would be funny to do That's that to really her. That's a really gross statement. Wow, yeah, I, did not, I, I, I didn't know she said that either. It wow. was her catchphrase for years. Nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. I did not know that, and that is gross. Yeah, it's 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 disgusting. And um, I can assure you, listeners, uh, homemade pumpkin roll tastes better than skinny feels. I can tell you, being a skinny person right now, um, I disagree with that whole statement. Yeah, being a fat person right now, I disagree with that statement. So we got both ends of the political spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> it's not right left; it's skinny and fat. Yeah, but go go eat. I literally don't even care what it is. You don't even have to make a sandwich. Just shove, shove some bread in your mouth with one hand and, 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 and cold cuts with the other. Just eat food. Every day, eat food. The only caveat I'll put on that is if you have access to protein, make sure you eat that. That. Pro- protein, protein, protein. Protein protein is the best, but if you don't have access to protein for some reason, calories. yeah, a Snickers bar will do at this point. Like, Truth. you need food. You need Food. I, I, I will. I'm just going to say this one last time. You need food. And thus concludes the Noctivigant Nutritional Diatribe of the Day. Tune in next week where we're going to talk about the benefits of eating raw soy. We will not, um, though. <laughs> no, no, though. <laughs> and the week after that, I will hunt down a man with a spear gun, skin him, and teach you how to, prefer, how to prepare people steaks. I'm no. now very confused about this show. <laughs> so to answer my own question here, um, I agree with uh, what you guys were saying. And I, uh, believe it or not, I, I, you guys kind of hit every point that I had laid out for myself to talk about here. So I don't have too much more to add. And I really, really, but I will say, I really, really liked the raid metaphor that you did there, uh, Nick. As somebody who's a big fan of the MMORPG genre of video game, that was fun. <laughs> Fuck, I had another thought. What was it? Uh, yep, I don't remember. It's gone now, so it must not have been that important. So let's move on. Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. 
three days later, you wake up in the middle of the night in the cold sweat. It was a solution to cold fusion. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. That's what I had. As if. I ain't that smart. Came to you in a mental download and you didn't uh, say it out loud fast enough. So the grays were like, nope. And they just yanked it right back. What a bunch of jerks. I've been telling you. Like Robert Johnson, our author was at a crossroads when he met the devil. The devil looked ordinary, wearing a barber jacket, wellington boots, and a scarf. The devil was munching on a sandwich, even. But as he passed, the devil asked if he was hungry, and Philip said he was. And so the devil advised Philip to check out a good pub down in Furl. One with good food, beer, and a warm fire. But Philip didn't want to. He feared that if he went there, he would never finish his quest. So, when he was asked why he was here to begin with, Philip couldn't remember. His memory seemed to escape him in the presence of this entity, and the devil man laughed at him, and when he did, his great black and red tail flopped out of his jacket. And in that moment, Philip remembered, and then shouted at him that he walks this path because he chooses to walk it. Philip then proceeded to throw a rock at the devil and flee, like you do. If I was given the opportunity to throw a rock at the devil, I probably would. I don't know if I'd throw a rock. I feel like his reprisal would be much more significant than a thrown rock. But it'd be funny. If I had, like, a Gatorade cooler of holy water, <laughs> I'd throw that at him. I'd throw a Gatorade cooler of holy water at him. I wouldn't throw anything at the devil. I like him. Devil's your homie? Yeah. He showed us where the fruit was, so now we can do algebra and shit. Fair point. Yeah, but now I have to wear clothes. <sighs> Nick, also and, and, a fair point. And uh, <laughs> Nick, what would you rather have? What would you rather have? This house you live in with your lovely wife and your laptop that allows you to write some of the most fucked up things I've ever read in my entire life, or do you want to live in the jungle with the fruit and the worms and what's considered, you know, everything that we'd ever need at any point in time? Shh. And the ability to do all the fucked up things I write about. And be in the presence of our creator at every moment and have essentially a magic dude who's just there to hang out with us. Didn't we just read a whole thing about how dragons are necessary? All I'm saying- Didn't we? Maybe the dragons are necessary because of this. Maybe they're the dragons massage you. In fact, isn't it according to the Bible that we didn't have these fears until we ate the fruit? We didn't have these worries, these concerns- to people yet. Maybe we should we have stayed fruit. as proto ooze people. Nah. Return to the ooze. Eve was a liberator. He <laughs> was a liberator. <laughs> well, this event, plus the rain that he was currently walking in, the hunger that he was feeling, all of this he defines as an ordeal, which is a critical part of the journey. It was the pain of exploring or growing beyond ourselves. It is only once that we have pushed through the pain, the fear, and discomfort that growth happens. So he muscled through and he made it to his second landmark, the Longman. At 227 feet tall, it is the second largest representation of a human figure on Earth. It is a chalk outline carved into a hill. And this long man was drawn on the wall of the natural amphitheater of the Downs. He is only really visible when approaching directly from the north and staring out across the fields. The long man was made to be deliberately distorted to account for the slope 
making it so that when viewed from the surrounding countryside, he looks to be of the correct shape. When Philip was staring at the long man, he noticed something. The long man didn't have genitalia. This made Philip sad, thinking of a man that was rendered impotent. Then, while he's having these thoughts, Nguyen appeared beside him again and asked if he remembered the chalk phallus from the previous vision. Philip did, and Nguyen explained that to the ancient people, procreation was magic incarnate. It was creation, and the symbols of it were sacred. And when the goddess died, he lost his phallus, for he lost his ability to procreate with her. Nguyen said that the goddess used to be carved on a nearby hill, and back then the god had a massive phallus. God. It's towering, cock. Water would be gathered from the pools at his feet and taken to the goddess. This is a matter of historical record, he says, and he cites T.C. Lethbridge as one who saw it for himself in the late 1800s. No. You know, which I do have to point out, T.C. Lethbridge is the guy that you may remember from Dreaming Ahead of Time by Gary Lockman. He was the guy who tested various substances with a pendulum to basically determine, well, like, black and death have the same pendulum rate. Oh, and yeah. so they are somehow, cor they correspond with each other in on a metaphysical level. Uh, so if you want a breakdown of that, just go back and listen to that episode. Yep. The loss of the goddess and of his phallus, Nguyen explained, is a metaphor for the destruction of the world. The world is run by impotent men, possessing only destructive power instead of creative power. When we came to believe that the body and soul were separate, and that our bodies were dirty, we began to glorify the mind at the expense of our home. If our bodies were vile, then so must the earth that bore it. This is why, according to Philip, we exploit animals, plants, nature, and women. Women who have always been closer to the natural. The goddess was forced to hide from our repression, forcing her power to retreat into the caves and hills, which are not guarded by dragons, and this is the deepest pain of our species, and why we seem so determined to kill our mother earth. The phallus of creation has become a sword and mad with grief. We plunge it into the world around us, using it to kill and hurt rather than create. Newman looked out, and Philip followed his gaze. There, walking along the path, was a crying woman in black tattered clothes. She held in one hand a miniature forest, and in the other a miniature city. Look at her, shouted Nguyen. This was the goddess, the soul who watches in agony from behind our eyes as we tear the world apart. She looked him in the eye and asked him why he had betrayed his childhood, stolen it, corrupted it, and denied it. Why has the man betrayed the world? Philip fell to the ground, shaking and weeping. He said he had no choice, that he was looking for his mother and that the more he looked and didn't find, the more his rage grew. This surprised Philip. He didn't know where these words came from. But he turned and faced her, and she said, quote, You have looked for me for so long, I was frightened you would destroy me in your searching. You paraded armies before me, not to terrify, but to impress me. You sent rockets to the stars and built huge buildings just for me, but we never met. I was told to hide. I have been told to hide no longer, or you will destroy this world in your search and I stand here waiting for you to approach. And after moving on, he realized that this conversation with the goddess had not merely been one between him and the goddess, but rather humanity and the god, with him standing in for all people. 
He spent the following days writing down his memories of the trip, and in doing so he realized that there was something that he still didn't get, and that being why the loss of the long man's genitals was more important or just as important as the loss of the Mother Earth. Well, needless to say here that there's a lot of potential theories and thoughts as to what is happening with this figure's dick and what it might mean, and from related stories of various other gods who lost their junk to the idea of just androgyny in general, the combining of the masculine and the feminine, but I'm not going to go into all of that right now because, frankly, I didn't care for it. So Philip was haunted, though, by the image of the long man and that of the goddess. He was taunted again and again by the image of her face from his vision and heard Nguyen shouting, Look at her. She is the goddess who has been denied. Then, one night, Philip dreamed of the long man, and he told him that he could be a blank screen on which Philip could project his own unconscious material. Either that, or he could be a gatekeeper and way-shower to inner realms which are independent and separate from his own inner realm. And he chose this option. He was told to focus on both staves, but found that impossible. He could only focus on one. That is, until he tried looking at one with his eyes and one with his inner eye. And as he did, the inner world appeared between them, inside which he saw the goddess on a throne. Philip says that it's easiest to enter these realms in a hypnagogic state, that state between waking and sleeping. And that's that meditative state that we've actually talked quite a bit about on this show. Once again with uh, Gary Lockman, it came up quite a bit in Dreaming Ahead of Time. Yep. And I believe we talked about it uh, with Strieber's book a couple of times and other stuff. He then found himself before the goddess who once again confronted him. Quote, I am the goddess denied, she began to say. I have been called many names by countless men and women. I am Brigid and Anna, Isis and Astarte, Venus and Diana. All you need to know is that until you come to me, until you accept me in your heart, you will never truly be a man. He experienced then the sense of oneness with all of the universe. All of humanity flooded into his consciousness, and then he fell back asleep. When he woke, he found a note that he had written telling him to go back to Wilmington, that he had missed something there. And so, around the spring equinox he did, setting off from the long man he made his way. As he did, he stared at the long man and it suddenly hit him. There was no penis, because this wasn't a god. It was a depiction of the goddess, and always had been. Where there should have been a penis, there was a narrow depression like a vulva, and the hips were wide and feminine. Now, this may not have been the case when it was built, but even if not, the meaning had now changed, and the goddess now stood on that hill. This was no longer a place of death and castration to him. Now, because of this realization, it was one of bounty and beauty. The meaning had changed, and so, too, did his feelings about it. And with that, we're going to move into our third discussion question. So we're going to talk a little bit about this long man. Like many of the stories that we have read like this, it's very extravagant. The goddess and the long man visiting him in his dreams, this sudden realization that this isn't the long man, but rather the goddess, and that maybe the imagery changed to be what it needed to be. So my question here is this. Is this kind of thinking 
a dangerous way to go about sharing this message because he writes about it in this book as if this is a world truth when in reality, this is more of his personal thoughts and experiences to imply that he, almost on a whim, figured out what people have been debating for a long time seems to me like he may be trying to find anything to fit the narrative that he's already been building. Okay, so uh, this gets at something I know we're going to be discussing more in relation to the last question. However, so when I was looking at this question, I recalled a particular quote from the preface of the book. And upon rereading that preface, it made a whole lot of this book make more sense to me. Because one of the big points of contention I had throughout this entire book is how literally are we supposed to take these events? Um, are the, is he talking in metaphor to detail, detail some sort of internal journey? Is he having visions? Uh, whatever, what have you. Now, this quote, again, is from the preface, uh, quote, one night I was lucky enough to hear the land speak to me, or so it seemed, and I decided to follow its invitation to walk through the local landscape in a spirit of openness and acceptance so that I could write about the Druid way, not from an objective point of view, but from the inside from the point of view of someone walking this way at a particular time in a particular place. And with under that context, I, 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 it allowed me to take any of these grand sweeping assertions about the nature of reality, gods, goddesses, all of that, and uh, kind of see it as, as, as it's not truth. That is the metaphor he was presented with at the time, in the sense that these are the images that were important to get him kind of past this dragon that he was currently facing, get him through this journey. Um, and there might be some metaphoric, metaphysical truth beyond that in the realm of things that we can't understand. But I, I saw them more as, uh, as images that were presented specifically for him in his current mental state and the location he was. I buy that for a lot of like the image of the goddess and the, the, the devil and all of that. But the, but the sudden, like, oh, this isn't the long man. This is a, a, a depiction of the goddess. You're saying that this thing that people debate about, talk about, that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years is not what anybody's saying that it is because it suddenly fits this idea that you are proposing is kind of the point that I'm getting at. Because this isn't like, this isn't a, a vision that he had. This is physical. This is something you could go visit. I went and, lo I went and looked up a bunch of pictures of it online. Yeah, so lie. I when okay, so yes, authors do unquestionably massage the truth to make it fit the the narrative or thematic purpose of their writing. Absolutely, there's no denying that. And that easily could have happened here where he came to a certain conclusion, maybe not even in a manipulative I need something to support this idea sort of way, but in the he came to that conclusion because that was already the line of thinking he was on in writing mm -hmm. the text. Um and I mean, recently, so for our listeners at home, when we're recording this, it is shortly after uh, after Christmas. And my family has a pretty recent tradition on Christmas Eve. We go to my brother's church. It's the one time of year I ever attend church. And, uh, you know, it's fine. It's more like a rock concert. They play a lot of Christmas songs. They have some really good singers. It's, it is what it is. But as we were there and I was kind of watching everything unfold around me, I was looking around at the crowd. And just kind of gauging their various reactions. And some of them were bopping along to the music. Some were singing. Some had their eyes closed and their hand in the air, uh, communing with God. And it kind of occurred to me that each of those people was having a completely different 
uh, religious experience and understanding of the words they were hearing. And that it, it to me, on, to, a, to a great degree, uh, religious faith, religious belief, which I weirdly see this interpretation as part of because it is supporting his worldview. He is seeing something external world and attaching a new meaning to it. All of that is ultimately religious belief is inseparable from personal belief, from personal truth. And I think that the the idea of a universal religious truth, this is this or this is that, that kind of falls apart. That's why we see a lot of strife between religions is because we fail to recognize that something can be true for an individual, but not true for on a global level. And that's how I'm becoming to see a lot of these, uh, I guess, divine experiences is ultimately it is uh, them doing their best to interpret what may be some outside communication from the collective unconscious, gods, what have you, but they have to take it and they have to put it into, into kind of the narrative they already had going into it. We are we, uh, set and setting, like we were talking about with DMT. His set and setting was already going to lead him to this conclusion. He found religious experiences and interpretations in the world which supported it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, but that, that's about as far as I got. I mean, because I, I don't know. I, I, I think it could be dangerous, but I think that one quote from the preface, even though I, I do see your point where this he is talking about something much more physical here, it's not a visionary experience or anything. I, I After rereading that quote, I'm looking at this entire book as allegory, every single bit of it outside of maybe the history and the landscape. And this book is, and I skipped a ton of it because it didn't necessarily add to what we were talking about, but this book is actually loaded with uh, with British history uh, of the land and of iconography, and there's it dabbles a little bit in, uh, and actually, funnily enough, it has a lot more literal history than uh, any of the like folklore. Yeah, absolutely. Which I thought was actually kind of funny. Well, in and uh, I mean, I think I probably would have gotten a lot more out of this book if I knew the countryside he was talking about. Oh, because sure. Because there were definitely also long passages where it's like, I went by this mound to the t- to the village of this, and then I walked along the river X to the next village Y, and I was like, I would love this if I knew what any of these places I, were. I Googled a lot of them so that I could just see the imagery that he was talking about. I Googled the tump. It is a hill. Yeah, it's a hill. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the hill of Tara. Yeah. So I had a lot of concerns about these three chapters in the middle here um, with that that uh, are kind of taking place around this question. This is not an article being published in a scholastic journal in which he is misquoting sources in order to assert an opinion that he knows is false uh, in terms of the long man. Like, I think I, I think he's making some really big assumptions and he's swinging really hard for the fences based on uh, not a lot of evidence. Uh, He does caveat it with, well, if that's not what it was then, that's what it looks like to me now. It's like, I can't, I can't go pack unpacking that suitcase full of worms right now, buddy. I am mostly just haunted. And what I consider to be the dangerous rhetoric is this deeply gender essentialist stuff that's very baked into what he's talking about now. And as I was reading through these chapters, the thing I kept thinking to myself over and over again is, wow, you can really tell that this guy received his education in a post-Wicca world. 
because this did not feel like druidry to me. This felt like Wicca cosplaying as druidry of it's just like, oh, the divine feminine mother who's the gentle creatress who could never, ever do anything, anything wrong. How, how could she ever? She is, the, she is the ultimate light and the ultimate source and men are scuzzy little horrid cockroaches that just go around stabbing and shitting and that's all they do. And it's just sort of like, okay, is the patriarchy very tied up in capitalism and chunks of Western imperialism? Yes, yes it is. But the solution isn't returning to some mythological matriarchy that never existed. Like what he's like what he's talking about, like, well, we can safely assert that the Druids were a matriarchal society. It's like, no, they're not, motherfucker. We know they weren't. Because nobody was. That thing you're talking about is not a thing. And it it's just, I don't know, as 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 a trans guy, this in particular just rubs me really the wrong way. I really hate. I, I just I really hate being told that uh, I am corrupted now just because I wanted to, you know, stop living in a body that made me actively suicidal every time I woke up in it. Like, I just like the like the long the assertion of the long man actually being a depiction of the goddess irritated me. Um, these baseless assertions of the forgotten mother goddess that was the true origin of religion, which also we in the academic religious world, we are completely positive that that narrative is false in 99 percent of context that it is presented in. Uh, you have some cases like Ashra in the Judaic temple where, yes, that that was a thing. There was an Ashra most likely at one point she was she was eliminated. But ancient mother goddess destroyed by the evil monotheists uh, specifically for the point of oppressing women. That is uh, a distortion of facts at best. And finally, I am very, very over the rhetoric that women are incapable of causing harm to the world and everything that's wrong in the world is a direct result of men having power. Because again, that is a distortion and misrepresentation of facts at best. And it is that kind of thinking that leads to... um judges dismissing abuse allegations simply because they're made against mothers and shit like that. So I I struggle to really absorb anything in this middle section of the book just because it goes so deeply against my own personal beliefs and experiences that I was genuinely just getting very angry while I was reading it. Yeah, so I uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you here. And I think this is uh, a lot of the, the queerness in us coming out in our uh, talking about or in our reading this, because the part that I skipped over was really triggering for me uh, because it was a lot of it was essentially talking about uh, the, the, the binary of Druidry, because it is a lot of what Druidry teaches talks about the divine masculine and the divine femininity and the part I like about it and that Obad teaches now is kind of trying to find a merger of the two. You want parts of the divine feminine, parts of the divine masculine. And I did not get that from here. From I, I, I essentially, like a lot of the takeaways out of this section felt like a, you need to shed this idea of masculinity and embrace more the full idea of femininity. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable. 
and it it should. Like I I had beliefs that were not dissimilar to this at one point in in my like late teens, early twenties. And that was uh, because my brain was rotting away in rad femme juice and I had to wring it out like a dirty sponge. Yeah. And so, like, I, I wholeheartedly feel what, you, feel what you're saying there because that part was like, it, it really got to me. You know, it, it is funny uh, just because so I, I got to that point and I just kind of passed by it like any other section uh, because I don't have that personal kind of that. And, and here's the thing is that, like, Operating around uh, witchy people and pagan circles and knowing a lot of those people, I've heard for over a decade that, you know, and this is a very common message given to men. Uh, I've heard given to me of you need to get in touch with your feminine side where the feminine is almost this mysterious other that uh, the only path forward is to reconnect with it. And I I definitely did, I I guess. see myself to a degree in the image uh, in the not specifically myself i saw that rhetoric at play in the whole idea of men are you know their penises are swords slashing through the world i i i have definitely encountered this idea that because of something that is completely outside my control it's nothing i want to change i'm comfortable being a man i've always been i've never felt the need to question it um but because of this thing I cannot change, I am a villain. And that's actually something that fucked with me for a long time in my life. I had to come to grips with the fact that those people don't get to define that. That no, Really, nothing. That what's The bits hanging between my legs don't get to define that. The only right. thing that gets to define that is what I do and if I get caught. But... Um... So, and and I and I don't disagree with the idea of embracing femininity. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but I also think like a lot of this is kind of just talking about almost like just shedding the idea of masculinity because it is innately evil. Is a lot of like how it was uh, portrayed, at least in my perception here. And I disagree with that because I. While I'm a non-binary person, I lean very masculine in my both my presentation and in just how I am. But like to say that I can't like that the fact that I lean uh, towards a more masculine presentation and a more masculine identity almost is not or is innately evil or bad is not okay to me. And now like thinking about that on a more like metaphysical level and thinking divine masculine versus divine femininity it still feels like here what he's saying is, well, we need to lean more towards the feminine rather than the masculine. And I don't believe that. I think that if that was the image of the goddess like that, um, that it's what it, what, to me, what it's saying is that we need to find a middle ground, that we need to find a more uh, a, 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 a center of the two. And maybe the reason why we took it away this way is because he, Philip, uh, the author, is masculine. He is yeah. a man. So he feels that he needs to be more in touch with the feminine side, the more the the femininity and let go of his masculine side. The difference is that is not how it was written. Yeah, well, and I, I could definitely see that. Again, we go back to this is the juridic path expressed from a person in a particular place at a particular time. Right. And so it's all going to be in relation to his own uh, mental, spiritual makeup. I also have a very strong feeling that, again, I've brought up Wicca a couple of times. I have a very strong feeling that uh, at at least for the bulk of his early journey into spirituality, even if the plate people he was hanging out with were calling themselves a druidic circle, it's like this stuff 
this is Wicca. Like this is straight up Gerald Gardner. Like I, I, I can, I can smell it baked into this. That that assumption right now. Yeah. Uh, So Obad teaches through the lens of many other faiths. Okay. um, Because there isn't a lot of actual data to drive Druidry. Okay. Because the vast majority of Druid teachings were oral. They were passed on through oral tradition, and then when they were finally written down, they were written down and then distorted through the lens of Christian monks. Ah. So what we have to go off of for actual Druid texts written from Druids is next to nothing. Okay. So they have to kind of extrapolate the ideas based on what carvings we do have and what we're assuming based on what we see in things like the Ohm, which is the uh, the Druid ruins or the Celtic ruins, uh, we have to extrapolate from what we see from Ohm and from carvings and from paintings and things like that, and then from the poetry and things that have been passed down, and then the closest that we get to any kind of actual text is the Mabinogian, which is all folklore, and it's Welsh, specifically yeah. Welsh. It isn't. Yep. It isn't Irish. It isn't Scottish. It isn't. It isn't British. It is Welsh, the Mabinogian specifically. And there's nothing wrong with that. The vast majority of Obad is through is taught through the lens of Welsh society as well. So that's why you get a very heavy Wicca vibe, is because uh, the majority of the leaders of Obad probably at this time and probably even now started out as Wiccans. Yeah. That's what I thought. When did Gerald Gardner start Wicca? When did, when did his branch of Wicca start up? He is the original founder of Wicca. Oh, is is he? Okay. I'm not that well versed on Wicca, to be completely honest. It's a long time. It was a long time ago. The popular 1954. Okay. Well, no, I mean, the reason I ask is because uh, Philip was born in 1955. Yeah. And so it, that definitely would track from a timeline perspective that... While he was getting involved in this, uh, Wicca, is Gerald Gardner British? Yeah, he's English. Well, I mean... Uh, it would, and it was huge over there. Yes. Right. So, yeah, because he did most of his, uh, I guess, introduction into metaphysical uh, practices in his 20s. Yeah. So, so that... He, guaranteed. In London. So yeah. that would have... that Guaranteed. That does line up uh, quite nicely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the last thing that I wanted to bring up here kind of the reason why I think that this question or this thought is is important here is because we talk a lot, a lot, about how when we are interpreting texts from the old days to now, we have to take into con we have to take into consideration the context of the time period, the history around then. And all in uh, and everything about how the people back then would have thought about what they were doing from an art perspective. So when we're looking at the long man, and we're making vast, sweeping assumptions based on a feeling, what we're not doing in that moment is taking into consideration the context of the time, yeah, the history of when it was actually made. We're not taking into consideration anything other than how we feel in that moment. And that is from a academic, scholarly, from any kind of perspective that I can respect, wrong. Yep. I mean, yeah, the the only thing I would say is, 
Okay, so a lot of magical practices obviously encourage magical thinking in which the meaning you you attribute to something at the moment you do it, that is as close to truth as you're going to get because the meaning people did in the past uh, attributed to that image in the past may not jive with your current life. Now, that said, I'm not sure I've ever been fully comfortable with that idea in the sense of uh, cultural icons have a meaning of their own that is distinct and outside from the self. It's part of the collective whole. but. I guess I, I again, I, I guess I chalked that up to that uh, that quote from the preface that this is ultimately all of this is just personal meaning. And for that reason, we shouldn't try to apply it on any grander level than Philip's head. But that said, I, I do understand your point. I, I and, and like I, I understand that point as well. The problem I have with thinking about that, even in the context of the quote is the title of this book. The Druid Way? Yes. Yeah. You you titled the book The Druid Way, not My Druid Way, not Philip's Druid Way, The Druid Way. But this is Philip's interpretation of some things that lead to the Druid Way. And the vast majority of this book I agree with. It's this part that I have the biggest problem with. Yeah. I would just fair. I understand your arguments. But that was it. I just because especially because we try to come at so much of this from like a, an academic and scholarly perspective. I, I didn't want us. I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that a lot of what's being said here is taken from a more magical thinking perspective, which I'm fine with. But I would prefer that it be fully presented in that way. Not it's this book goes back and forth between historical fact and then magical thinking. Yeah, no, it does. Absolutely, it does. But that's it. Any other uh, last thoughts here on this one before we move on? I'm ready for section four. So am I. All right. Then let's move on to section four. On to Hindover Hill. The landscape here, if nothing else, was the goddess. The natural forests and hills forming what seemed to him to be undeniably the form of a woman. The forest below was nestled between two hills, her thighs forming up to her pubis. Philip went to the top of the hill, and here he entered a meditative sleep. He dreamt of a doorway and a beating heart. He walked through the doorway, his own heart seeming to beat louder, and saw a light. Suddenly he heard a sort of banging sound, saw a wide river of blood and a great tall figure pushing open two huge doors. The blood river poured out from the door and onto a plain. And in the river were many animals, from tigers to ferrets. And then he woke. And he woke up to the sound of a baby crying nearby. Not a good sign. Generally speaking. But thankfully it was just of a couple that was passing by. Thinking of rivers and seas and the goddess, he entered into a state of reverie. He felt that the mother showed him her other face right then. The warmth and light fled the day. She was no longer the wife and mother, but the wrinkled hag. She was the giver and taker of life. She was the source of joy, yes, but also sorrow. That night, as he arrived in Furl, he learned that a close friend, a 17-year-old girl named Lucy, had died. So he went out to the tump, climbed to the summit, looked to the sky, and then knelt and placed his face to the earth. He asked the mother to bless Lucy and bring her safely to the Isle of the Blessed. He spoke to Lucy there and told her that she was loved and that she was blessed. Then, following an urge, 
He turned and walked in each cardinal direction, beseeching the spirits of each quarter to look out for Lucy. Quote, I then found myself walking directly through the circle from the east to the west, standing, facing outwards towards the quarter of the setting sun, of evening, of autumn, of departure. I cut through the circle that symbolizes the cycle of our lives to face the world beyond linear time, the other world of death. Facing west to the Isles of the Blessed and wishing Lucy well, I finished the ceremony. He sensed Lucy's presence nearby as he tried to sleep. And he asked how she was. She said she was shocked, but ultimately she was okay. He walked her through the journey that she needed to go on, and she told him to tell her mom not to sell her riding boots. For whatever reason. Philip was asked to perform the funeral ceremony, and he did. They gathered a little bit after the spring equinox to hold this ceremony. They walked on the seashore of Iona and spoke of Lucy and the journey of mortality. They spoke of death as an initiation, and how Lucy's journey had affected those who'd shared the road with her. They all knew that, while they were grieving, they must allow Lucy to pass on to her next birth, and the next stage of her journey. And with that, we're going to quickly go into discussion question number four. Yeah, wow, way quicker. Quattro! So, how the, uh, this is going to be a tough question. I might dabble a little bit into stuff that we've talked about before and talked about today, but I felt like it was maybe time to talk about it again. So, how do we make sense of the randomness of the world when it comes to death? So, a 17-year-old girl dies in an accident, and this is clearly one of those dragons that ultimately you can't really confront. You know, you... When, it happened. Yeah, it, it happened. But how does this work for Lucy? So she only got 17 years to attempt to walk any path to her own enlightenment, and due to some accident that was outside of her control, her soul is sent back into the cycle to start again. That doesn't seem fair to her. Do we think then that there is like some sort of cutoff for how it works? Or is it really just that... Sometimes life isn't fair. I think the bottom line is that life isn't fair. Um, I, I, I always, when this question turns up, I always return to uh, Harold Kushner, who is the author of Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, which is... Um, it's a very short and easy to read book. And if you want an introduction to um, modern theological discussions of the nature of death, it's actually a really good and accessible starting point. Um, and Harold Kushner was a Harold Kushner was a Jew is a Jewish rabbi and theologian and scholar. And when his son died of progeria when he was quite young. Well, that's horrible. Yeah, it's. um. Yeah, it is. It is because that's not even like that's not even a condition of like your son dying randomly in a car accident. Uh, progeria, for those who are listening who don't know, is the rapid aging disease. Um, it's usually diagnosed before the age of 18 months. The children very, very rarely live longer than a decade. I believe Harold Kushner lost his son when he was around seven or eight years old. Um, and they knew they knew for many years before his death that he was going to die. They knew almost as soon as he was born that their son would not live to adulthood. And why do bad things happen to good people is essentially 
the theological book that he wrote after he had fully processed the grief of his son's death and had integrated it into his religious worldview. Um, and essentially what he said is that within the within the the faiths of the book, uh, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, there is sort of this threefold idea of God. God is all good, God is all knowing, and God is all powerful. And he why do bad things happen to good people is is exactly what the title says. It is him trying to piece together how can a God who is all three of those things allow evil to exist. And he goes through many different proposals about why that could be, but his ultimate conclusion boils down to, and and again, he's he's Jewish, and most Jewish people particularly scholars and mystics take the stance of religious being religion being incredibly personal and each individual's each individual's relationship to god is going to be completely dissimilar to everyone else's relationship in his personal theological view kushner came to the conclusion that he's like i do not want to stop believing that god is all good i do not want to believe in a creator god that is capable of evil and capable of cruelty and the next step was i do not want to stop believing in a god that is all knowing i do not want to believe in a creator god that sometimes is not beside me that is sometimes not with me that sometimes does not hear my prayers and so the last thing is he basically said, I have let go of the idea that God is all powerful. How could God be all powerful? And so he basically said, I already lost my son. I didn't want to lose my faith and I needed to recreate my faith in the light of this new tragedy and see how it changed. And he he came to the personal conclusion of God is all good. God is all knowing. But there are things that God cannot do. And our faith should be strong enough to withstand that revelation. And that's kind of where I'm at of it's like you it, it is a fool's errand to try to come up with the justifiable reason behind every unspeakable death and tragedy in the world. Like my uh, my 17 year old cousin also died she was in a horrific car accident. She was brain dead. Her mother had to make the decision to take her off of life support. And I don't know how the fuck I am supposed to go through a world believing that there is a, that there is an intelligence that made that decision. Um, I, I, I have to, for my own sanity and for the sanity of my family and for the sanity of my clients, I have to live in a world where it's like the, the sky is never raining on you. You were just outside when it started raining. The universe didn't do this to you. There is a there is a random series of calculus equations that are going on that we can't conceive of that is beyond any God that you are capable of worshiping, that it's like. Death does not do these things to you. Death is something even God can't understand. Yeah, I like that. I like that take a lot. Thank you. I mean, obviously, this is a very difficult question. And I think of all of the uh, existential questions I've stayed up late thinking about, uh, my own mortality is definitely uh, probably the biggest. Oh, yeah. And um, same. I don't know. So, like, I've thinking back to some of the other texts we've read to kind of uh, connect it uh, a bit 
I was thinking about specifically the NDE uh, literature that we've read and how many people who had a near-death experience reported that place as being realer than real. They felt like they were coming home, that they didn't want to leave. That was where they wanted to be. And so I, this isn't, you know, again, anything I say on the show isn't a belief. It's an idea. Uh, so what if, though, it, yes, it is unfair. It, death is inevitably unfair. If I had died in that car accident when I was 18, God, can you imagine how unfair that would have been to my mother, to my, fa- my family, my friends? Yeah, and, I, I can, in fact. Yeah, how unfair that would have been to Kelsey, who never even got to meet you. Yeah. Right. And, and ultimately to you, Jay, because we would have never met. <gasps> yep. No, but, but the point being, though, is that, of course, we feel that way. And, of course, death feels like this uh, enemy that we have to defeat from the perspective of us here in the living plane. Because as far if there is another world, we don't have memory of it. We don't know anything about it. We are stuck with what's here. And the end of what's here is the end of everything that we think we know. Now, if there is uh, any truth to the various claims we've read that you know, for example, reincarnation, that we continue to go back, that when we go back to that other world, we suddenly remember all the other lives we've lived and we get a better sense of our existence as a total tapestry. In that case, I, I, in that case, yes, it is, life is unfair for us here living it. For those standing outside of life, that chapter, even though it ended a little suddenly for Lucy and even though it uh, was traumatic in its own ways, there was likely lessons that could be t- that she could take from that for her next life, and that the whole idea is that kind of it, it it's you, it ceases looking as unfair if you shift from the perspective of that was her only shot to this is a chapter in an ongoing story without a beginning or end. True, and yeah. I uh, and is that just me trying to seek catharsis in what is ultimately the tragic death of a seventeen-year-old girl? Maybe, but I, I also have seen enough, uh, I've read enough accounts from people who, the only people we know who have maybe glimpsed something close to the other side, and what they've said, it, it definitely would lead one to think that there is, uh, that we go on, and that ultimately what's happening here in this world is, yes, it's important, it's where we come to grow, uh, as we saw with Whitley Strieber, and also it's come up in many other texts, this world is a school. Uh, but the fact of the matter is though, that eventually you do graduate. And while that may look horrible to your friends who no longer have you at the lunch table with you to you, you're off at college. You're, you're going and getting wasted at spirit ragers and having a great time and learning and growing, or maybe you, uh, move to a different school and you're learning new things there. And, and so I think from the perspective of the dead, it's perfectly fair. I came here knowing I was going to die. There's uh there's this piece of art. That is uh, that's back from around when the Spanish flu was um, ravaging America. And it's just it's kind of haunted me since I've seen it. Um, It's this it's this black and white piece of art of a of a young mother in a black morning gown standing in front of her in front of her house, her face in her hands, weeping and walking away from her is a feminine, a feminine depiction of the Grim Reaper pushing a baby carriage with the woman's two young children inside. and. The, the Grim Reaper is gently pushing the carriage away, singing them a lullaby. And basically the artist had just during the Spanish flu epidemic had seen so many babies, like not even literal babies taken by fever and the flu that basically 
he kind of couldn't handle it. And the way part of the way he coped with that is imagining the Grim Reaper not as this thief in the night coming to steal children, but of like this this gentle, caring mother that kind of steps in is like, okay, something's happened and you don't exist in the same plane as your babies anymore and you can't take care of them hand them to me. I'll take them where they're supposed to go. It's it's going to be fine. I'm so sorry this is happening, but they're with me. It's okay. Yeah. That's really intense. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I, I mean, hate, the whole question is intense. I but. mean, I think that ultimately, I mean, as we've mentioned on the show, how we think about death and how we deal with death ultimately is going to indicate a lot about how we handle life. Yeah. Um... And having had my own incredibly close, close brush with death, I, 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 I've definitely had cause to sit back and spend an awful lot of time thinking about it. And I think if I had to, it, I hope that what I, that theoretical scenario I just said is true. I, I genuinely hope that we go on because otherwise you're right. It is unspeakably horrific if this is your one shot and babies come into this world just to die. If children come into this world and get progeria and just die if random 17 year olds can get in a car accident and die. I mean, I was a random 18 year old and I almost died. And, uh, I, I, I think for the world to still have meaning and still be a bright place, I have to believe we go on. And that's just my own personal, uh, psychological requirements. And, and that doesn't have to be anyone else's and that's perfectly okay. Uh, but I mean, regarding anything like this, I just always try to find solace in the idea that, well, yeah, that was a rough chapter. In every story, there are highs and lows, and the highs will come again. There's a, I can't believe I'm going to quote a Brandon Sanderson book, but uh, so there is a uh, a re- a section in the most recent of the Stormlight Archives books, uh, the Rhythm of War, where one character who has been battling uh depression basically for four thousand pages, uh, is in a really bad situation and is talking to this uh, other character and basically the thing was well yes there will be storms you're gonna get wet you're going to get hurt but you will be warm again and that's the point you will this will pass even the rigors of death you will be warm again things will be okay again and in the end as long as you take a deep breath and deal with the dragons as they come upon as you come upon them even if you lose you will you will go on it will be okay and I, I don't, that's something I kind of ultimately, weirdly, like when I'm feeling really stressed or anxious, actually it does help me a little, is just kind of repeating that mantra in my head of like, no matter what happens, ultimately it will be okay. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good mantra to have. Just even just the ultimately, no matter what happens, it will be okay. And I think, weirdly, I think like I, I agree with, like my interpretation of like life after death and how everything works is very similar to yours, Nick. I believe very much that like, regardless of what happens now, like there's ultimately, there's going to be some lesson that I, that I learn in this life that's going to help me in the next one. Because I do, I believe very strongly in reincarnation. I have no evidence of it and I don't give a shit. I, (laughs) I like the idea that I, you know, I, I continue to come back until one day I'm ready to go and be one with whatever is greater. I think that is ultimately kind of where I lie on the question uh, on this too. But I also really like 
the uh, what you were saying, Jay, to the point where I think I want to read that book just in general because I think it would be really good for me. I, I think you'd really like it. Like, uh, honestly, I think you'd like a lot of Jewish mystical thought on what God is because some of the things that you've said about how you prefer to reinterpret the Christian God, I'm like, that's just the Talmud. Yeah, I'm not necessarily surprised by that. The little bit that I understand about the Talmud and like Kabbalah and all that, I, I, I vibe pretty strong with it. But also like there's a part of me and like the reason why I said, do we think that, or I put in the question, do I think that there's a cutoff point? There's a part of me that likes the idea of because of the uncontrollability of this world, that like if shit happens, you almost get like a free pass. If you like die before the age of five, it's like, well, now you have the ultimate option. Do you want to try again? Or you can just stay here now because that shit was whack. And for nine ninety nine spirit dollars, you can get the Born a Billionaire DLC. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think that idea is fun. But off topic, I had a thought while you were talking, Nick. And this is, uh, and I'm going to bring it up because I had it while while this was happening. So, but what if sometimes, not every time, but sometimes ghosts are left behind, not because of an individual's baggage or an individual's uh, reason to stay behind, but rather because of our grief of them and our inability to let them go. And because of that, we almost create an egregore or an image, an imprint of them that then stays behind and is here now. That is as valid an interpretation of ghosts as any other. Uh, I never thought about something like that. I thought it was really interesting. I've actually heard a few, um, a few. I don't want to call them ghost hunters, and I don't want to call them exorcists, because uh, the people that I'm thinking of would be very angry at being affiliated with the Catholic Church, even in passing mention. But basically... A lot of the people on those ghosts on those haunted house shows that I used to watch, I've I've heard that asserted a few times that it's like, no, the reason this ghost is here is because your mourning is so intense. It's literally like summoning your husband back like a dog whistle. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I can see a I can see that, you know, like it makes sense to me in its own way. All right, let's move on. Last section. It's time to begin the journey home, just six months after he began at the Tump on the winter solstice. His wife drove him back to Luz, and from there he began his journey back. He found himself walking through the fields of waist-high corn that moved like the ocean waves, and here he experienced another vision. He saw a giant throwing a huge hammer at him, which crashed into the earth. He ran to it and lifted the hammer, and lifted the hammer where he found that it was actually an axe. Weird. He thanked the giant and used the axe to dig a hole so that he could bury it. I have no idea what happened in this section. Me neither. As he walks on, he wonders why giants are so prevalent in lore and posits that maybe they represent some memory of ancient beings, another species of human, perhaps. These ones are just enormous. Maybe they represent how children see adults. As adults, they sought even larger people to guide them, or perhaps the answer is in psychology. Quote, when sexual or combative power flows through us, we act as if we are greater than our normal selves, physically larger and stronger. The Amazon was often seen as a giantess, if not in size, then in strength. She epitomized the power of sexuality in the warrior. 
And can I just say, so much of when he references psychology just feels like Freud. It is. Every, uh, every psychological thing that he's touched on in this, um, in this book is basically straight Freud. Uh, some of it seems to have some of that Jungian influence, but yeah. it's, it's predominantly Freudian. Yeah, and you know, the funny, like, the the thing and the reason why I thought that is like that's almost so counter to what the lessons in Obad do because they quote Young constantly in Obad, but I digress. Philip wonders if we project these images because on some level we sense that there is really something there, some energy, a reserve of power that at one time manifested as giants or could only be understood in that context. Or maybe they do objectively exist in some other layer of reality that we have yet to access. Well, after this, he kept walking along the countryside. When he arrived at the slopes of Galadin, he stripped nude and danced around in the sunshine. For the freedom that that nakedness implies, nothing weird. He was then arrested for public indecency and spent 23 years in jail. That is not true. The lesson of these moments, though, is that joy is not dependent on any one thing. The materials to construct it are within us all by default. But he continued on, and he finally reached the tump in early evening. He climbed the dragon's path and stared out from the summit. And as he wondered how such a small, man-made hill could seem so magical and so essential, Nguyen appeared to him again. Nguyen explained that the tump was a Lunazda hill one built thousands of years ago to commemorate the beginning of August when the god Lu brings the crops to fruition and when it's time to harvest. Nguyen told him that nobody was truly certain of the origin of the mount. Some thought that it was a spoil heap. Others say that it was built over horses killed in the Battle of Luz in 1264. Others think that it was a Roman lighthouse, a cavalry hill, or a viewing mount. But that is not true. It was built to honor the harvest, and it was built there because it provided views of the midwinter and midsummer sunrises and sunsets. In this way, it's also a solar observatory. These mounts are essentially sun clocks that help track the seasons, which I actually buy that to be 100% true. I mean, a lot of ancient me uh, megalithic sites, when we look at them in relation to where the stars were at the time they were built almost always they line up with certain star systems or the sunrise or sunset because Correct. ultimately without you know before tiktok time before we had clocks that was how you you set the rhythm of your world yep. was based around the natural rhythms of the sky and nature around you you guys want to hear a batshit coincidence so the three great pyramids of giza um, their points line up with the belt of Orion. Correct. They didn't originally. So they built. So the implication there, if it was intentional, was that they built it after mathematically figuring out where those stars would be at some point in the future. I thought that was a remarkable coincidence, but you know what? They might have. They might have. Those fucking those fucking Egyptians loved their fucking numbers. They loved math. It was what they spent most of their time doing. I was going to say they were kind of math whizzes, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They stuck a stick in the ground and watched its shadow for a while, and they're like, we know the circumference of the Earth. Neat. Yeah, yeah. Within a hundred, within like less than a hundred miles, they were able to calculate the circumference from the Earth just by watching a shadow move around a stick. 
Well, when you have literally all day to work on a problem, all day, every day, week after week, yeah, you get you get shit done. True that. They didn't have TikToks. No, 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 they didn't. No, they didn't. They had a crocodile god that would occasionally um swim out of the river and fuck everybody's wife and knock them up and then just go back in the river. And it's like, oh, so back. Simpler times. Well, it was also here that the fruits of the harvest were offered to the gods. Sometimes funeral pyres also burned there, offering up the druid's physical forms to the gods. Philip stared out, and a vague sense of discomfort came over him. He felt as if he was being called to let himself be dismembered or dismantled in some way. He felt as if his body and soul were being picked apart. This was the call to the harvest. And at that moment, the accomplishments of his life, his work, his family, all of it seemed to be nothing. The seed of his life was spent. Giving in to the feeling, he laid back. And as he did, he saw images of all that he had hurt and all that he had loved, all he had taken from and all that he had given to. And a voice whispered to him, When is it necessary to die? And he responded, When the flailing God comes unto me and says, I shall tear you into a thousand pieces and scatter your body across the land. He told the voice that he didn't want this to happen. The voice told him that delaying this would delay his death, but also that it would delay the time when he would wander the landscape, collecting his pieces like Isis assembling Osiris. So he surrendered, allowing the combines and scythes of harvest to sweep over him, to kill him. He felt himself become one with the wheat. All the products of his life ended in a flash of a blade. And in that moment... The love he shared, children he sired, and books he'd written became no longer his. Now, they belonged to the world. And with that, we're going to move into our final discussion question. Okay. So we made it. We made it through the whole journey alongside Philip. Yay! So, another simple but not simple question. How much, if any of this, actually happened? I am going to give what sounds like a cop-out answer, but I'm going to argue it's not. All of it and none of it. Cop-out. Well, basically, <laughs> I do believe he he walked these paths. I believe he got his, his wife to drive him out there so he can continue certain legs of it when he got tired and went home. Because he did not do this all at once if you didn't gather Yeah, that. no, he like would walk for a while, get his wife to pick him up, go home for a few weeks, then have her drop him off at that spot and continue on. Uh, and I believe all that happened. I believe that he had many meandering thoughts and maybe even some sort of religious visions while he's out there. I think that this is a prime example, though, of uh, something we've talked about before, of happening truth versus story truth, to reference uh, Tim O'Brien, the things they carried, how he used it, where the story truth is that he had these experiences. He went out there, he spoke with gods, he threw rocks at the devil, he had a vision of a giant and buried a giant's axe. Still don't know what that's supposed to mean. Yeah. Uh, and that that is the story truth. The happening truth, maybe he wandered the hillsides, he danced around naked, he had some interesting thoughts, he got caught in a storm, he had some dreams. And my basically, my the thought is that both can be 100% true. Because one is true in the subjective sense of the uh, material reality we all share, and one is true in his inner mindscape. And one thing that's come up again and again and again in a lot of the texts we've read is that ultimately both of, both of those realities are real. They're two sides of the same coin. 
And that it's only by accepting kind of that non-dualistic notion of reality that we begin to uh, s- actually see truth and experience progress. Once we get past these artificial barriers we put up on our consciousness. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that to Philip, these events happened. Even if he did later invent a vision in order to get at the meaning he felt, what I would see that as is him attempting to negotiate what was that uh, right brain intuitive knowledge into something that could be described in words. So maybe he didn't have a vision of speaking with Nguyen and having all these visions. Maybe it was more like a data download. Maybe he had a moment of understanding and then over the next couple months spent a lot of time trying to, through the metaphor of talking to a god, uh, parse it out into, into something that's legible. I mean, because, again, we, that's something that every single, uh, not every single, but most mystics and most people who've had these, uh, I guess, extra experiences, who've had these uh, experiences and encounters with the other world, that's a frequent issue. They can't convert it into spoken language, into written language, because that is the domain of the left brain, of, the, of logic, of reason. And these two things, ultimately, uh, language is not meant to capture that ineffable other. And so that's how I, I guess that's the uh, treaty I came to with myself so I could stop every three paragraphs screaming what is happening. Because I, I legit, there was a couple days reading this book where I, I thought I was beginning to lose it. Because there, <laughs> there, there was just sections where I was like, I just read a whole chapter. I have no concept of what happened, of where I'm supposed to be grounded. And part of that was uh, a complete lack of knowledge of the landscape because it seemed like he was relying on the landscape and these towns to sort of be a grounding element, to connect his visions to uh, a very knowable land. And because I didn't know that land, I was left with nothing but vision land. Don't uh, don't try to read uh, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. You will have a very similar experience. Joy. Can confirm. Yeah. yeah, so I, I think that Fucking so Amos. once again, I argue it is not a cop out. I think it is true and not true at the same time. No, I don't. I don't actually think it's a cop out answer. I was just being an asshole. Oh, OK. The Jay. usual then. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. I unless your name is Woody Derenberger. I do not want to look at a book you wrote about a deeply personal and affecting experience and go like you're a fucking liar. Um. There's only one person I'm going to do that to so far. Um, well, two, Len Caston. That wasn't a deeply personal experience. Fair point. That was him repeating what he learned at Bullshit Bob's MLM cult. Touche. Okay. <laughs> I lose. I'm sorry. You lose, sir. Excuse me? You lose, person. You lose, friend. Friend. There we go. I, my brain locked up for a second. He realized he'd uh, said the wrong word and he panicked and forgot all the other words he knows. Correct. Ah, that is the mark of the one true ally. How how extensively do they panic when they misgender one of their friends? Do they immediately begin trying to commit seppuku? They might be the one true ally. Um, so, yeah, I... I I feel like... (sighs) Here's the thing. I, I... the one thing where I'm like, this is definitely a vision that actually happened was the giant throwing the axe at him, was the giant throwing the hammer at him that then turned into an axe that he then buried. Um, and you want to know why I know that's the one that definitely happened? 
because that's the only one that actually sound like uh, sounded like what religious visions usually sound like to me, mm. which is I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what the fuck that sequence of images actually meant. Fair. Um, also, it uh, it's not an exact scene from anything in the Mabinogian, but it sounds like it sounds like shit out of the Mabinogian. It does. It does. Yeah. Um, I was specifically reminded of the uh, the stone spears that were hurled at Olwyn's father. Uh, yeah. Olwyn's father that then came back as uh, metal spears, spears to uh, signify the transition from Stone Age to Metal Age. Yep. Uh, but so for for the rest of it, I I believe these things may have may have happened, or he may have had these internal experiences. Whether or not he saw them as fully realized visions, I can't attest to just because the 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 deeper I get into kind of deity work, um, the more I'm starting to realize exactly how rare it is to have things appear to in front of you as like fully realized corporeal visions. Um so he may have he may have experienced these things internally and then later wrote out what it looked what it would have looked like if it was like a visual experience. But um I I believe he I believe that the internal emotional journey that he had was real. I believe he probably had the weird waking dream of the giant throwing the the hammer axe at him, and the rest of it I really can't attest to. <laughs> So I agree that in a, it, I I agree with the take of it's both real and not real and I because I do think that somewhere in here he probably did have um some kind of real visions uh or something but here is my ultimate thought about it I believe that when he was walking along these uh trackways or w- whatever that he called them that he was doing something that was very good for him, right? For his journey, for his path. And he was completely engulfed in Owen in that moment, in these moments. And so through that, that, uh, through that essentially tapping directly into the other world and, and receiving this inspiration, he was able to come up with these wonderful uh, sounding stories that he then wrote out in this book because they helped guide what he was um uh what he was feeling what he was trying to the story that he was trying to tell and i don't i don't think this is a bad thing for like the images and stuff like that the problem that i had i think i made clear when you're taking apart like actual history and things like that and trying to bring it into that same narrative but i think that these stories that he wrote the visions that he had probably came to him as a story would come to you, Jay, or you, Nick, or how lines of a poem or a song would come to me, or how I might think of how to do the intro to our show or something like that, how it just, like almost like a data download. They would come to him and be like, this is a great metaphor, a great story to tell this thought that's been in my head for the last five miles that I've been walking. Yeah. You know? And that I think tracks. I, and I, I think that that's probably a lot of what happened here. Um, and I don't see anything wrong with that. Just for the record, I I see absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I and I think if anything, it's a great example of 
the use of how Alan can come. Now, did I vibe with every story that he told here? No, I, I did not. Um, I, I did not vibe with them, with them all. And that probably just comes down to, I actually, the, you made a really good point, Nick. I think a lot of it comes down to my inability to understand the framework that he was using because the framework he was using is a country I've never been to. You know, I've studied a lot of Welsh and British folklore and history and Irish and Scottish folklore and history, but that didn't necessarily come with the landscape, you know? So I think that is ultimately kind of where I, I fall on it is I think, like you said, I think it's a combination of the two. But one thing that I will say is regardless of its truth to us, I 100% believe that all of this book is a religious experience and a religious truth for him. Absolutely. Without a, a doubt, you know, taking into consideration what we learned from... Uh, American, American Cosmic. Cosmic. American Cosmic. Yeah. Taking all of that into consideration, regardless of whether or not it happened then, it's true to of being an event that, ha that, that exists in this world now because of how he took that, because of how he took these events, if that makes sense. It, it does make sense. That's actually, um, that's actually the attitude that uh, more and more modern Wiccans are uh, bringing it back to them, trying to take with their origin story of their like, is this based in any sort of uh, factual historical truth? No, of course not. We know that. Gerald Gardner was uh, basically lying. They're like, that's in the, the more positive interpretations I've seen. It's like, yeah, and the story's not about that. That's not it's 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 supposed to be a long protracted metaphor. That's what our origin story is. And the key difference is just allowing people who are practitioners to know the difference between the factual historical reality and the 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 story reality happening yeah. truth versus story truth yeah and i i mean that's what a lot of thelemites are trying to do with crowley too good luck guys yeah like that one i <laughs> that's a tall order hey they're trying though but yeah i think that's about it any final thoughts here before we go into our uh, usual wrap up stuff uh no i i i do think this was an interesting book and I would recommend reading it to anybody who's interested in this kind of, uh, in this kind of, uh, these kind of stories. You probably find it very interesting. Um, I would not take this book as a word of law to the Druid way, though. That is the disclaimer that I will yeah, put on there. I, I, again, I got a very similar vibe that I got with Jenny Tyson. It's like, the, I'm, I'm not mad I read it. I don't regret it, which honestly, as far as books are concerned, that's my really only benchmark. Did I regret reading this yeah. or not? Because if I if I if I didn't, it means I at least got something from it, even if I didn't particularly enjoy it. And it's not to say I didn't enjoy this. There were whole sections I I quite enjoyed. The dragon shit, honest to God, loved it. Yeah, and honest I, to God, loved and it. And I felt a bit emotional reading the ceremony they yeah. did for Lucy. Me too. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of beautiful poetry and a lot of beautiful imagery in this book. I I'm not I think that it's it's one of those uh situations where your mileage may vary based off your own metaphysical religious beliefs your own connection to druidry your own connection to that landscape that he's describing and I for me being completely detached from all that I can't say this was my favorite book but it was far from my least favorite yeah 
No, I, I, I mean, I'm very connected to Druidry, as we know, and I mean, it's not my favorite book either, but I will say even in the back, like the back of the book and the, uh, the, the appendices and stuff, uh, he has some, uh, like small ceremonies and things that you can do in there that I think are very cool. If nothing else, like I'm totally going to hold on to this wedding ceremony that's in here because I think it's super neat. And I am uh, a fan of, of, uh, officiating weddings now having done it twice. Yeah. But yeah, no, ultimately I would recommend this book to anybody who's interested in these kind of stories and who wants to kind of go on a wild ride through the English landscape and you get some history in there. Yeah. All right. I think, does that put that one to bed? Yeah. Let's go into the, about the author. All right. So Philip Cargome was born in London on January 31st, 1955. He was raised in Notting Hill Gate and educated at Westminster School and the University College London. He met his first spiritual teacher, Ross Nichols, at age 11. That's Nguyen. Nguyen? That, that's the same person. Oh, okay. That Nguyen is his druid name. Ah, gotcha. Uh, Nichols was the founder of the Order of Bards of Vades and Druids, and he began studying as a teenager and at age 18 was inducted into the order. He also studied meditation in Ireland with Olivia Robertson, who later founded the Fellowship of Isis. And in his 20s, he himself founded the Esoteric Society of London. After the death of Nichols in 1975, Cargom in turn followed a Bulgarian teacher named Amran Mikhail Ivanov and helped translate his works into English. Later, after earning a degree in psychology, he began research into psychosynthesis and became a licensed therapist with his own private practice. In 1988, he was asked to lead the Order of Bards of Eights and Druids. He organized the Order's first distance learning course and led the organization into a period of unprecedented growth until it is now the largest Druid teaching order in the world. In 2020, he left his role, passing along to his successor, Iamir Burke. After which, he became involved in the Acer Integration Program, a group focused on providing integration therapy that is community-focused and driven by principles of acceptance and commitment to self. While his principal spiritual practice is druidry, he has come to believe that we have entered a period where we can leave behind such labels, arguing that we are all drawing upon the same perennial tradition. He has written a large number of other books on druidry and spirituality, including Druidcraft, a breakdown of traditional druidic traditions and beliefs, What Do Druids Believe?, A Lesson in Magic, A Guide to Making Your Dreams Come True, Seek Teachings Everywhere, Combining Druid Spirituality and Other Traditions, Druid Mysteries, a Brief History of Nakedness, an Exploration of the Spiritual Dimensions of Nudity, The Book of English Magic, and he's also written a novel titled The Prophecies, which is the story of a Luftwaffe pilot who falls in love with a French clairvoyant and is compelled to betray his country. And he has helped create several tarot and oracle decks, including the Druid Animal Oracle and the Druid Craft Tarot. He hosts a website, blog, YouTube channel, and a smattering of the usual social media platforms, with an overall focus on assessing the intersections between spirituality and psychology. He currently lives in Sussex, England, with his wife, Stephanie. And that's what we got. That's what we got. So you know what that means. Um, Housekeeping. Oh, I thought we were going to beat Jay to death. No, 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 not, not, no, no, no. No, I love them very much, and I need them to be around for a long time, because they're going to make me be here for a long time. Yes, I am. Okay. So, housekeeping. Housekeeping. 
housekeeping. So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening to us on. And if it's Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Five stars preferred, but not required, but definitely, definitely preferred. And if you want to reach out to us for whatever reason, you want to give us a book suggestion, like seriously, if you really want us to do a book uh, or cover a book that you don't want to read, don't want to read, (laughs) even if it's terrible and you know it's going to be terrible and you want to torture us with it, go ahead, send it to us, noctivingandpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on social media at noctivingandpod or I am at Mixroy Wicks. I'm at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias. We have an Instagram, Noctivigant underscore podcast. We have a Reddit account, Noctivigant Podcast. We have a Tumblr account, Noctivigant Podcast. But I think that's it. So what is up next? Uh, so coming up next, I am going to be taking us into the land of conspiracy. We're going to be reading Nick Redfern's The NASA Conspiracies, which is a breakdown of all the various conspiracy theories about NASA that have come out since the organization's inception. Double. Which is going to be wild because we have, I don't think we've actually truly covered a full on conspiracy book outside of maybe Lancaster. Well, uh, spoilers, it, it is going to cover some ground that you're familiar with because uh, UFOs come up an awful lot. Oh, I'm sure. There's a whole chapter on Roswell. And uh, obviously, there's a whole chapter on on was the moon landing faked? It oh, was good. not. Mm. No, no, and it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, we'll get there next week, though. No, I'm excited. They they tried to fake it. They hired Stanley Kubrick to direct the shoot, but his dedication to realism and the perfect shot compelled him to actually develop a rocket to take them to the moon to film on location. That is not true, but I wish desperately that it was. You know, this doing this book is actually going to be a pretty good lead-in to our summer series, too. Like, just teaser for what we're going to be getting into. Yeah, because the Summer of Secrets is going to be all about conspiracy. Oh, and I am excited. I am not excited about the book you chose, but let's, let, let's leave that a mystery for the listeners. Yes, I'm excited indeed. about bo- both books I chose. So, do we have anything else? Any final thoughts that we want to go over? Uh, fun book. I like dragons. All right. Well, then, (laughs) good night, ghosties. Good night, (laughs) ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Watch out for dragons on those midnight roads. Probably pet them or ride them. Just walk into their mouth. I hear it's safe. No, no, no. Approach them very, very slowly. Keep your hands where they can see them. Ten and two. Yep. Leave 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 the food on the ground. Back away slowly. If the dragon wants to make friends, it will come to you. Yo, tended to I just got the image right. I have some guy approaching like a mountain-sized dragon holding a steering wheel. Like yeah. the steering wheel's not attached to anything. It will He's just holding a steering wheel as he walks forward. It will interpret that as an offering, and it will take the steering wheel for its heart. So I really hope you were done with that steering wheel, buddy.
sitting back and thinking about it, I have to wonder, is part of the confusion with the long man just a weird trans allegory? That's all I got. Welcome to Noctivicant. Come, take a walk with us.